Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. p.m. A crowded subway train starts its run from Pelham Station in the Bronx. 1.45 p.m. Four desperate, heavily armed men seize control of the train. Open the door or I'll blow your head off. Taking 17 people as hostages. Your attention, please. Now then, you'll all remain seated. Anybody who tries to rise is going to get shot. (laughs) I do hope I have made myself understood. 13 p.m. The city of New York is given one hour to come up with a million-dollar ransom. You're out of your skull. No units stand by on a double. What's up, Z? A train's been hijacked. Millions have read it. Now you can live it. The taking of Pelham. One, two, three. There is no way you can get away with this. You are underground in a tunnel. At precisely 3.13, we are going to begin executing the hostages. Nothing will happen as long as you obey my orders. New York City is held powerless in the grip of four ruthless men. From the mayor's office. Don't tell me I don't want to know. To police headquarters. I've got about 50 men inside the tunnel, all wearing vests and armed with machine and submachine guns. We can fight the third world war down there. To the nerve center of the world's busiest subway system. My only priority is saving the lives of these passengers. Maybe an hour isn't enough time. An hour is plenty of time. We agree to pay the ransom. Repeat. We agreed to pay the money. Now turn your clock off. The money has to be counted, stacked, tied, transported uptown. It just isn't physically possible. You'd be surprised what's physically possible. Column one, two, three is in motion. How long does it take to get all that money together anyway? Just not gonna make it. We'll never make it. The passengers are dead ducks. What the hell they expect for that lousy 35 cents to live forever? Walter Matthau, Robert Shaw. The most spectacular hijack in history. The taking of Pelham. One, two, three.
welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Keith Gordon. Lick my bunghole, motherfucker. Also back in the booth is Mr. Dwayne Sfrazinski. What's the matter, dude? Never saw a sunset before? On this episode, we are doing something unusual. It's actually a redo of the third ever episode of the Projection Booth. Yes, we are talking about Joseph Sargent's 1974 film, The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, and 3, based on the book by Morton Friedgood and brilliantly adapted by Peter Stone. The film stars Walter Matthau as Zach Garber, a transit cop whose train is taken hostage by Robert Shaw as Mr. Blue and his three henchmen, Mr. Green, Mr. Gray, and Mr. Brown. The film is a who's who of amazing character actors from Dick O'Neill to Kenneth McMillan to Julius Harris to Sal Vescuzo to Christopher Murney and so many more. We will be talking about all of them as well as spoiling the film and its two remakes as we go ahead, so please be warned. So, Dwayne, when was the first time you saw the original Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and what did you think? It's funny. I moved with my wife to Brooklyn in the fall of 97, and because we're dorks, we walked around looking for museums and things and found the Transit Museum, which had at the time, I'm pretty sure, a nice kind of display about Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and I'd heard of it, but I never actually watched it. So, of course, we rented the VHS Maybe it was a DVD by then. I'm pretty sure it was a VHS from the corner's place. And I, I loved it. I was blown away. In fact, it started for me a long season of watching gritty 70s New York crime movies. It was funny. There being 20 years later, it felt like, wow, things have changed somewhat. <laughs> but mostly it's the gritty New York of the early 70s was like catnip to me. From French Connection to Serpico. And it all started with Pelham. I think it's genius. I love, I adore this movie. And I was very happy to have the chance to rewatch again all these years later. And Keith, how about yourself? I saw it when it first came out. I'm old enough that I was 13 when it opened. And I have a two sides to my connection to the film. First of all, I love the movie. But also, I grew up in a New York theater family. So I knew a lot of the people, even as a kid. Jerry Stiller and Ann Miller and Mira were old friends with my parents. That was part of going to see it because Jerry was in this movie. And my dad had worked with a lot of the people, Doris Roberts, who plays the mayor's wife. And so there was that connection to it, which then only grew with time because I, as an actor in New York, as part of that film and theater community. So a lot of the people in this film I ended up working with then in the years that followed and Jerry Greenberg, who edited, edited Dress to Kill. And, you know, Barry Sidey, who plays the Wasp passenger, was in Richard III with me on Broadway. So there's a whole personal connection side to it. But then that all aside, it's a great movie. It's a really, I think, rare combination of a gritty, dark, violent, clever thriller with smart twists and things you don't see coming. Because I usually feel, even as a kid, I started getting ahead of a lot of movies. You don't end up ahead of this. But it's also got a great streak of dark humor. And it can be really funny. Very few films, I think, have pulled it off this well. There are comedy thrillers, but that's a whole other thing. This This ain't a comedy. It's a very tense thriller. But it's a tense thriller with characters who have moments of great humor and great, just really funny stuff happens. And then it has a whole sort of social political dynamic. You could be watching the movie, but whether it's about sexism or racism, there's something about New York and that moment that it captures, and also a generation. And so everybody in the movie, the, all the leads in the movie are late middle age or older, and they're all part of a kind of an attitude, I think, that was changing and moving out. But like Walter Matthau's character, great character, you love him, but he also has some really 
politically incorrect moments and you forget even at the time what and you forgive him because he's so great and it's so well written and the character's so neat but it also has moments of you go oh that's weird so i don't know it just seemed like a very original and unique film and maybe more than anything just really clever and and it's so character driven even the thrills there's some action but it's really about behavior and about human beings and how they act and what they do. And that's something that's very lost. And I do think that later sequels lost each more and more. But the original, man, it holds up because of that. Because human behavior is still human behavior. It's a film I've loved and, and seen a lot. I do a podcast on Barty Miller. And one of the things I try to get across on that, especially in that first and second season of Barty Miller, is just what a position New York was in in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, a few weeks ago, we did a recording about Midnight Cowboy, and that was during an administration that really wanted more people to come and shoot in the city because it was so difficult for them to shoot in the city. This movie is New York through and through. You know, for me, it doesn't work if it's a city other than New York, or at least New York is such a central part of this film. And also that economic turmoil that's going on is such a part of this film that they're having problems getting a million dollars together that the mayor, who looks a lot like Ed Koch, is having so many problems getting votes and that he's booed when he shows up on the scene. You know, they have to talk him into getting out of bed. I mean, Tony Roberts is fucking amazing in this. Another great, great actor. And just the way he comes in and bosses around the mayor. Just, you got to get down there. And then Doris Roberts, yeah, with her. Well, you got 18 sure votes. That's <laughs> that's what you're going to get out of this million-dollar payment. I love it. I love that that is so intertwined with this movie. Later, I think of Ghostbusters, where Bill Murray's telling the mayor, think about Lenny, millions of people who are all registered voters. That, that's, that's this movie has an impact on so many other like New York comedies and you know, movies that my friend Vince Keenan talked about how this is one of those rare movies where the it's working class heroes versus really tough gunmen, and they're equally matched. They're not, it's not these bumbling middle-aged guys. They have their shit together, which is impressive. They're good. Inappropriate, but they're really good. It's a cat and mouse game, which is, it makes, it's fascinating. It's a rare movie. I, don't, I can't think of many other movies like that. You usually have one intrepid hero and a diehard, for instance. But this is not, it's every kind of member of that, the, the transit authority is like, wow, they got their shit together. It's cool. Yeah. And I love how they cut from one to another. There's like so many different locations within the transit authority, different subway stations, the actual TA itself. Keith, you mentioned the editor. The editing in this movie is so great that we're constantly moving between multiple locations and multiple threads. I mean, you've got, think of the end of this movie where it's, okay, we're going to try to find these guys who are finally coming out of their train. Meanwhile, the train is shuttling down the track at insane speeds. We've got just so many different things going on. And, and that's the way that this movie is all throughout it. I think the only time you get a respite from that or a spite from that is at the beginning when you get to see the train being taken over. And even then it's, okay, here's Mr. Green. Now here's Mr. Blue. Now we introduce Mr. Brown and Mr. Gray and they all converge on this train. And then we've got that poor conductor who's you know, walking us through the numbers, giving us a little bit of exposition there as far as how this stuff works. And then you know, it, it isn't until the train is taken over that we finally get over to 
Walter Matthau's character. I mean, what an amazing way to open up this movie. And then, boom, we're just all over the place as far as, all right, who's affected with this? You know, the guys in the, the station, why the hell is that train not working? You know, <laughs> it's just all these guys. I love it. And the one station where the lady has lost her wedding ring down the toilet. And again, talking about the sexism of the time. I mean, it's it's great. I love how inappropriate it is, how they're like, don't swear there's a lady here. Grand Central Tower calling command center. If you picked up on Pelham 123 yet. Keep your shirt on. That's what we're trying to find out now. What'd he say? They're backed up all along the line. Jesus Christ, guys. You picked a hell of a day to be late. You wanted a plumber down here, didn't you? Whose goddamn wedding ring was it? Who else? Mrs. Jenkins. But Cash, you're Sorry about that, Mr. Dolowitz. It just slipped off. What were you doing with your hand in the john anyway? My hand wasn't Go fish it out, would you? The toilet's behind the board. Look, Cass, for Christ's sake, when you listen to me, there's a train down. Classification's been open to a woman for only a month, and already we're in a goddamn toilet. They're a vanishing breathing New Yorkers in this movie. I can't think of, like, maybe it finally died out with Tony Soprano, maybe, but that kind of, again, salt of the earth like that. I don't know, that really thick New York. God, it's refreshing. I love it. I grew up in Philly, and it's in a partly Italian family. I, uncles and great uncles. That, that's how they talked. That's how they behaved. That was It's very comforting in a weird way. I want those guys to help out. They get it without being cartoony. They get real New York as opposed to that kind of Hollywood shtick of New York. It's a New York crew, New York cast, New York. So that's what I also feel like you don't see a lot. A lot of times movies do New York and you feel like you're watching people do a sitcom spin. These feel like real New Yorkers. These are the guys that worked in the subway. These were those cops. And these are, I grew up in New York and these were the guys. They were all around you. Yeah, I absolutely love some of the accent that, because I don't know about Matthau as far as his New Yorkness, if he was originally from there, but I mean, he's got the accent down some of those things that he says just some of his lines are so rich and just dripping with that new yorkness and i just love that he's so cranky i mean walter matthew has always been you know was a grumpy old man right he's always been the grumpy old man even when he was like in his 30s and 20s but he just exudes that so well and i've talked before on the show as far as the what I consider kind of a trilogy of action films that he did with Charlie Varick, the laughing policeman in this one. And I'm not sure if you put a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you which one was the best out of those because they all stand very high on a great list of terrific crime movies that he just owns through and through. And every time he's on screen, it's great, but like I said, everybody else is fantastic as well. Yeah, Jerry Stiller, I love their back and forth. They're like a freaking comedy team as they go back and forth to this. Garbada Patron, Garbada Patron. Come in, Patron. This is Patron. Rico, I want you to plug everything you got into the IRT train master's circuit, will you? And all units stand by on the double. Call in the city cops, put it on a 9-11 so their computer gets it. What's up, Z? You won't believe it. You know me, I'll believe anything. A train's been hijacked. I don't believe it. And Walter Matthau is funny. I'm not sure if he's a New Yorker, but he has his own kind of his own accent. It's Walter Matthau speak, right? No matter what he's delivering, it's you're just there for it. It's him even like patiently walking, giving a spiel to the Japanese subway crew. It's just it's just like fascinated, even though it's by for him, it's by rote. He's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. These are many cars. And, man, I'm just I want to hear him talk forever. 
he was in a previous movie written by Peter Stone. It was a charade. He was in, this is how the connection, I think it's how he had hired for this movie. Oh, what was it called? 1965. It'll come back to me. But it was like a noir thriller. And Matthau played a, a private eye. Kind of think yeah, all through his life, he's had that kind of, he's been, he draws you in. <laughs> Just his voice, basically. Was it Mirage? Mirage, thank you. My brain just lost it. Well, it sounds very similar to Charade. And yeah, Stone brings a lot to this. Like those moments of humor that you're talking about, I think a lot of that is thanks to him. Because I listened to quite a bit of this book. The book is great. And the book is interesting, too, because the book takes different people's perspectives through the entire thing. So it's actually very similar to, I believe, the Charlie Verrick book is each chapter is a different person's point of view. This is very similar to that. So you really get a lot more of those passengers that are on the train, especially the undercover cop. And as far as this movie being very clever and surprising you at all times, I really like how they set up the undercover cop pretty early in this movie. And they remind you about it one more time, right around the middle part of this movie just to let you know that that is something that is still out there, something unresolved. But I also like that they obfuscate it pretty good because, you know, here we are talking about, oh, there's, there's women now in this, in this office and we can't speak freely. And they say, well, it could be a man or it could be a woman. We don't know who this cop is. So then you are looking around at all of the people in the train. Could it be this person? Could it be that person? You don't know. And then you tend to forget it. And then they bring it up one more time. You're like, Oh wait, no, now I have to pay more attention. And they still save it for quite a bit later until that cop finally jumps off of the the train, the moving train, you don't even know why he's doing it at first until he finally pulls out the badge and says, I'm a police officer, jumps off. And then that poor guy just, I mean, pretty much wrecks himself. Not a good thing for him to jump off of a moving train. Well, one of the things the film does so well, and the cop's a great example, but obviously the sneeze is the bet, is the core of it all. But the film really lays in important stuff without giving it away. And that's, again, I think super hard. I feel like I've seen so many movies that go too far one way or the other. Too, so many thrillers that either overplay the hand, so you go, okay, yeah, I get it, that's a clue. I'll, and then you don't forget it and you aren't surprised. Or they don't lay it in at all and you feel like, oh, all right, that's random. And this film does a beautiful job of setting things up but making you forget them. They just lay it in enough that it's not a cheat, but they don't lay it in so much that you're waiting for the payoff. And so you really can be surprised and you really can be like, oh my God, I forgot all about that. Or, oh, that's what that's about. And that's, I think, super hard to do. I feel like I watched so many movies when I was a kid, now, whatever, just fail at that. And this film has a bunch of things that an hour later, it suddenly paid off. You suddenly go, that's why we saw that brief shot or that moment or that person's look. Or, and... I think that's a beautiful thing in the thriller where you can pull that off well. At, at a craft level, it does a great job. Even like the first opening moments teach you how subways work to a degree. Like you have the, the guy teaching the young trainee, like, okay, head out, do this, check. It's like, oh, we're learning, but it's also colorful and fun. I don't feel like it's exposition dump. It's not, like, it's not the bad version me, Garber, explained to the Japanese visitors, oh, here's how our subway works, literally. We have a dead man switch. It can really be a, the hack version of that. They don't do that throughout. The structure is really clean and amazing. It's also, I was struck by how, wow, we actually have a weird version of a locked room mystery at play. Because early on, they plant the idea that, all right, they want this million dollars. How are they just going to get out of this situation, out of the tunnel? You have no idea how you can possibly pull this off. And 
it's in the back of your head for most of the movie until, oh, of course. But I never would have guessed it. It fooled me all over again. I forgot how they did it. And it's, that's masterful. Which is another nice thing that a lot of people probably forget all the skyjackings that were going on at this time. Like when they make the joke, oh, they're going to fly the train to Cuba. I mean, that was a thing that was happening all the time. Planes were being taken over and being hijacked and taken to Cuba or wherever to the point where there are so many jokes about it in movies. You know, I want to say there's one in airplane. There's definitely airplane two. It's all over the place there. Maybe even Kentucky fried movie. I mean, this was a common thing to have things taken over, you know, hijacked. And I think, yeah, we'll definitely talk about how 9-11 colors the remake, the 2006 remake, because we're in a totally different world at that point. But with this one, yeah, it's like, it's not that surprising that these criminals have taken over this train because things are being hijacked all the time. Good evening. The Middle East conflict boiled over today with four airplane hijackings and the Israeli government pull out from the Middle East peace talks. Arab guerrillas have claimed responsibility for the hijackings, including one that was aborted at London's Heathrow Airport. And it's also in that wave of me, very much of its time in a beautiful way for that reason, hijackings, but also New York, as like New York, a city on its ass. People being terrified of riding the subway, let alone being hijacked. Just the, the trip alone. What's the one line? It's for 35 cents, we're going to live forever. It's such a great cold line. <laughs> yeah, what do you expect? It's New York. You may die. Move on. I was like, wow. Well, that's part of why the film has such a beautiful sort of dark humored nihilism to it, because that was that moment. New York was at the peak of its criminality. Crime rates way higher than they are even now. People talking about, oh, crime. Yeah, the 70s was a lot of crime. But yes, the city was broke and was being ignored by Washington. The Vietnam War was still grinding to a halt, but people were still dying there. Watergate was going on. I mean, the country really did have this feeling of this sort of everything was collapsing and rotting and just falling apart. In some ways, there's some echoes of that now again. But that was a moment when things felt like, oh, is this society collapsing in on itself? And is, are the moral workers there anymore? All the things that you thought you could count on turning out to be dark and awful. The president was a crook and we were in a war that nobody knew why we were fighting. And, and New York, the, be- the biggest, best city in the country, was collapsing economically. And so I think it sets a tone that the film really plays with of a kind of nihilistic, where do we go from here feeling that really makes it affecting and then makes the humor not just jokes for the sake of jokes, but it was a whistling through the graveyard humor, sort of gallows humor that I think people really did have at that moment to try to get through what was a time that felt like, where the hell are we all going? Our leader, New York's leader, the mayor is the weakest character. He literally has the flu. He's a coward. He's booed and then disappears. Like he has no active role in this except paying the money, which is amazing. And the, the real heroes are like, I guess it is, but despite the nihilism, it's just totally true. It's almost like, who are your heroes? The guy next to you at the bar, the working class stiff. That's who's going to, we're going to save ourselves. And that's a bit of ray of light, all the, the darkness of this movie. But to me, it's wow, super New York. What people talk about in a war, that war, you stop fighting for some ideal and you're basically fighting to save your buddy and you're fighting to save the guy and you're right you're fighting to save your i do think that was probably true in new york at that time it was like there was a little bit of every man for himself but there's also this sense of okay we're here for each other everything may be collapsed we're gonna we're gonna get ourselves through it but there was a, a part of everyone so great too is like 
how when you were talking about that, what do you want to live forever for 35 cents? It was a kind of humor that was about really was like nothing surprised people. Jerry Stiller's character sitting there reading the paper, even as this was all going down, being like, all right, the hijacking, okay, people may die. And it's interesting to see how the later versions of this to me are so much more chicken about dealing with the fact that people in some jobs, you have to develop an attitude, sure cops have it, EMTs have it, whatever. People die. It's part of what happens in the world. And we don't see that in movies much. We see the, we see heroic figures who weep over every loss. And in the real world, I think we'll get cold. And this film catches that, I think, in a really amazing way. Yeah, compared to, like, to Speed, like 20 years later, Speed, similar concept, it's a bus hijacked. It's not like a, it's a team of people for sure, but it's Keanu's movie. It's Sandra Bullock's movie. It's like, they're like the our heroes that we point to. It's not in the, the people on the bus. They have their moments too, and it's similar, but I don't know, not in the same way this is. This feels, that's an LA version. <laughs> that's very LA. This is super New York. It's pretty uh, refreshing when it's dark and it's, it's darkness. <laughs> I mean, how many muggings, how many jumpers, how many people falling in, onto the rails? I mean, these guys must be so inured to that kind of stuff, that everyday violence and mayhem that, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. You know, after a while, yeah, you've become so inured to it that you're, yeah, it's like you are in a war with with the great city of New York and all of the crazy people that are in it. And even the characters who take action also have a certain kind of Neil status. There's, there's the dispatcher. I don't remember his job is, but there goes down the tracks. The crazy dumbass son of a bitch stopped it. He's halfway between stations. What the hell's going on? Down there? mental case. I'm going to nail his pecker to the goddamn wall for this. Guys, take it easy, will you? Oh come on! If I gotta watch my language just because they let a few broads in, I'm gonna quit. How the hell can you run a goddamn railroad without swearing? Grand Central Terminal. This is the desk train master. Who the hell's in charge down there? It's for you, Mr. Dollowitz. It's me, Frank. Ted Dollowitz. We're watching it on a board. What the hell good is watching it? I got trains piling up behind it. Get some goddamn supervision down there. It's on its way, Frank. I'll be back. He goes marching down the tracks and with the teeth of a hijacking because, oh, not letting these guys do this. And it, that character exists in later versions, but he's portrayed as an idiot. And in this version, he's portrayed as making a terrible mistake, but he's not like an idiot. He's he's a tough New York guy. And he's like, nobody else is going to do something. I'm going to do something. And yeah, it works out really badly, but there's a certain grudging respect, too, for the fact that he's, all right, somebody's got to take an action. I'm going to take an action. And that I thought was great because, again, in... So in the original version, even when people make real errors, everybody's doing the best they can do, as opposed to later on when it's, oh, there's the smart characters and then there's the idiot characters, which is so much easier to, to blame the mistakes on, oh, this person's stupid, as opposed to, yeah, everybody's great. And in, this is a movie where, yeah, even the heroes, again, have really questionable political attitudes or do really stupid things or put their foot in their mouth or make bad judgments. And even the silliest characters have heroic moments. I love movies like that. And again, that was very 70s. That was very, we had anti-heroes. We just had complicated characters. I agree that the script really was part of that too. It's written that way. It's written so that everybody's complicated. You have moments of empathy. Even with, even the killers, even Robert Shaw, he has moments where you almost like him and then you go, what? What am I doing? I can't like him. And I feel like that's, really good writing and really good acting. It's, those are hard things to do. 
without blowing it one direction or another. And this film does it really well through the whole thing. It feels realistic. It feels at no point do I feel like it was a character being pushed around. Oh, here's the idiot bureaucrat. Here's this. It's it also like people responding as they would in a real situation like this. I never felt taken out of it. Whereas the, the remakes, yeah, it's some pushing and pulling and it's like they're, they're set. There's certain types and stereotypes and it's a little more transparent. But man, this one, it's almost like a documentary <laughs> as if someone walked around and filmed this happening. I love that we don't ever really get that much background. Well, pretty much anybody, but especially when it comes to the criminals, especially when it comes to Mr. Blue, where he's like, he talks about military and, you know, he's killed men for speaking to him and the way that Hector Elizondo's Mr. Gray speaks to him. Feels like he was a mercenary. Maybe he like fought in some black ops type of thing. You don't get a whole lot about him though. And it's, he's very, whether I live or die, just going to try to get this thing done. And I don't mind if I die. I love when he's like, do they have the death penalty in New York City? No, we don't anymore. Oh, okay. Well, here, let me take care of that. I mean, his death is great. And I love that it's him killing himself we don't have to have that big standoff at the end where it's like come on do me a favor kill me kill me you know it's like no no i'm just gonna hit the third rail here and take care of myself with that awesome effect of the smoke gall coming out of his jacket so good and when he keels over face first what a moment and that to me speaks to that thing i was talking about where it feels like the film's also about the end of a certain generation this was a guy, he's got this British accent. He probably, I imagine he was probably a mercenary in Africa fighting on the wrong side. This guy was basically like killing black South African leader. This was a, probably a guy who did all really, really bad things and part of a colonial kind of way of thinking. And you've got these New York kind of tough older guys who like don't think women can do anything. And you feel like this is all part of something that's fading. And the fil- what's great in the film is it condemns it all. And at the same time, there's a certain like nostalgia at this about things you shouldn't be nostalgic for. There's Shaw has a certain kind of coolness that was going away. Now it was the coolness coming out of cruelty. It was the coolness coming out of meanness. All these sort of sexist guys. You can see them all heading for the scrap heap of history, but this is like a last hurrah, whether it's Matha on one side or Shaw on the other, or and even that thing of, all right, then I'll just take my own life. It's a very of another time. And it's all screwed up and ugly and weird. And yet it's also, oh yeah, that was this generation that by the next generation, things were different. People acted different. People saw the world differently. People perceived differently. Men perceived their roles differently. Racially, things were different. Matho puts his foot in his mouth about Eric Conway, whether it's the black chief of police guy, whether it's the Japanese guys that are, he's called to show around. He's awful at a certain level. TA Command Center. Come on in. A lot of laughs in here. Terrific place. You see, each train is identified by the name of its terminus and the time of its departure. Thus, an express train leaving Woodlawn at 6.30 p.m. would be Woodlawn 630. While on its return trip, its destination might be, uh, let's say, like Flatbush 825. I hope you're memorizing all this junk. I'm going to ask questions later. Hey, hey, Gobble, what the hell's the matter? Don't worry about a thing. They don't understand a word of English. This way, dummies. Just step this way, dummies. The cop's lying on the ground dying, and he goes, the ambulance is on the way, miss. It's like the film reminds you the very end that he is a dinosaur in his own way. And these are all dinosaurs. Martin Balsam, all these guys are on the way out. For me, there's a certain dark, gritty elegiacness about it that I think is 
again, a really cool and odd tone. And it's hard to do without glamorizing some really fucked up, out-of-date, awful attitudes, even for that era. And the film manages, I think, to do it. It doesn't glamorize any of it, but it does say, yeah, these were these guys of that time. And they had great stuff and they had terrible stuff. But they are part of a way that's going away. The way some of the old Westerns would capture the ending of an era. I feel like this film is catching an ending of a certain kind of male-dominated, white male-dominated way the world worked. And it's right at the end of that time. Absolutely. And the one non-dinosaur on the team is Mr. Gray. He's like, still younger, feels, and he's also, he's not a replacement. He's all, he's worse. Like, at least the older guys have a code of honor. They have something like, something that binds in this guy. He's playing grab ass. He's throwing the slurs around. He doesn't care at all about anything. So that, that's like almost even darker commentary on what's coming next. The next generation of tough guys and criminals. Oh boy, we're screwed. If this is the guy. He's the only guy who I feel good about when they, when he gets shot, you know, like I am like, Oh no, Robert Shaw. Oh, but when Hector Elizondo gets shot in the back, I'm like, yes, good. Okay. You deserve that. You definitely deserve that. He drops the MDM bomb. It's, it's, it's shocking even today. It's a home. And it really is of that moment. That films were sure dealing with that. If you think of it, films, The Godfather, which I think was the same year, or is it two years earlier? 74 was like his Godfather too. Again, these are like these awful mafia criminal guys, but they still had some kind of code, some kind of, and you knew that was what was coming next was going to be even worse. And I think a lot of American films in that time dealt with that kind of weird, things are dark, and yet there's another darker wave coming. It's just, it's an entertainment. It has no pretense of being art. And yet it says a lot and it deals a lot of like bigger issues, but while being completely entertaining and not ever feeling like you're being preached to. And that's, I think, a really, again, really hard thing to pull off because all the stuff that we're talking about could feel like, oh, yes, it's making a point. But it's just a really entertaining story. It just happens to touch on a lot of things that were part of the world. Obviously, the acting is superior in this film from everybody, but... I absolutely love the performance of Martin Balsam towards the end of this film when he, I mean, he goes from that elation of having all the money in his bed and he's rolling around. He's just so super happy. And then the panic when somebody knocks at the door. But I love how when Jerry Stiller and Walter Matthau are in his apartment, how he's still pretty nervous. You know, you got these authority figures, but then as they're on their way out the door, he kind of squares himself and he just like starts to give it to him with both barrels. Like, listen, I know I got a gripe with it. Yeah, I know I got a bum rap, but uh, I wouldn't do anything as stupid as what you just told me. What do you think? I'm a jerk. Just do me a big favor. Will you get the hell out of here, for Christ's sake? Come on, Mr. Longman. We have to follow our leads. It's our job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Big deal. Look, I got my rights. This is my home. I want a little peace. Well, just do me a little favor, will you? Get the hell out of here. Sorry if we bothered you, Mr. Longman. And he just, like, really, like, puts on this big show and everything. And I just love how this little guy finally feels like he's, you know, tough enough to stand up to the authority only because they're on their way out the door. And then... You know, we can talk about that end shot now or later, but that end shot, this might be one of my favorite endings of all times. That final shot, amazing. I'm not sure it tops it. It's pure cinema. It's it's purely, it's, it's, it's a sneeze and a look. It's It says everything. It's, it's really amazing. There's no final, ooh, gotcha. It's just, man. A look from Walter Matthau. I was, look, I was terrified of getting from my grandfather. Ooh, I did something wrong. Ooh, he got me. <laughs> and then I'm that screwed. fucking score comes up, and you know it is on. That's the glue. 
oh, I have to do with the whole movie. Like, it's, I think it's, man, it's like part military, but part like funky. It's also like the brass. It's it really, that's a perfect, like the perfect score. I write to that score all the time because that and the conversation, David Shire, it's great writing music for certain moods. Conversation is great for more sneaky noir stuff. This is like any bombast in the thing I'm writing. I put this soundtrack on. Beautiful. Like everything else about the movie, it's very much of its time, the style of music, but it doesn't feel dated. You know, and that's the thing about this movie and really everything about the movie, the acting, photography, music. Yes, everything of it is does feel mid-70s, but it doesn't feel like, oh yeah, that was back when things were clunkier or this year. Or this. It doesn't, it hasn't dated at all. That film, if anything, I feel like the more recent versions feel wildly more dated and wildly more of the, the two, particularly the most recent version, the Tony Scott version to me, it felt like, oh, this is of the two weeks that it was out and then it was dated at by the time it was the third week of the theater, it was going to feel like, oh, this, yeah, that, that was, that's old. And yet this movie, just, it's the beauty of classicism. It's like sort of a classically done film so that, yes, the, the style of photography is of the moment that you can relate to the thing, movies like Serpico. And, but it, you could show this movie to 19-year-old now and they completely enjoy it, completely get it, completely. There's nothing about it that feels like, oh, you have to be there to understand it. The production design of this as well. I mean, I was shocked when I found that they didn't actually shoot in a real transit authority office because you feel, you feel the grime, you feel the sweat, you feel the, the, the stale coffee. It's almost like you can smell that room that they're in when they're at that nerve center. So well done. And I, I love that they all have these old school microphones that they're talking into and just everybody's there, like, you know, communicating out to the world. And poor Dick O'Neill, just he's so pissed. He's always pissed, you know, but he's so pissed when it's just like, what are these guys doing fucking with my life? You know, I'm here to run these trains. And even when I got Walter Matthau here, Lieutenant Garber here, he's in my shit. I don't even want this guy here. And whenever Robert Shaw asks for anything, he's like, you gotta be out of your fucking mind. He's just so angry and i love that that space seems to reflect him he seems like the spider at the the center of the web it is so lived in compared to the uh, the tony scott film it's, it looks so high tech it's like this can't be real this is like super amazing. the pentagon doesn't have this shit it's like what the hell is going on here so slick and still so down it's like i don't know that's not the city agency i know and love it's gonna be grimy it's gonna be, you have an old tuna fish sandwich in a drawer somewhere from three years before that's what it feels like unpleasant discoveries that poor plumber going for the ring in the toilet. God help that guy. Because well, I remember I was working on something. I wish I could give the person credit. It was a production designer or a costume designer. Maybe it was Ann Roth. Somebody I worked with who talked about the fact that to make something feel real, everything, if the movie's set in a certain time, everything has to be five, six, ten years older than that. Whether it's the cars on the street, clothes. Because in real life, things get old and people have old stuff. And particularly when you get into government places or things that aren't done. Their equipment's all ancient and falling apart. I feel like the film really caught that. Like everything should be replaced in that in those offices, and it's barely working anymore. And the trains are barely working anymore. And it really caught that. It really caught that everybody's getting by in life, whether it's the people in the transit authority or just the people on the subway. People they wore in the same coat they've worn for ten years, and this film really has that. And I feel like that's something that's gotten lost in a lot of filmmaking now is that sense that. Most of the cars on the street bought three months ago. But this really gets the fact that in a time when economics are bad, and particularly city economics, that stuff's ancient and nothing's working. And 
the early on the, the train motormen to say, oh, yeah, this this train's a dog. It's fucking on every nothing. And I think that really makes things feel real because that's how we all experience the world. When you go get on a subway train, unless it's a really bizarre, lucky moment, you're not walking on a train that was put into service a month ago. And yet when you look at the Tony Scott movie and all that, you're seeing stuff agree that probably doesn't even exist now. It looks like some science fiction version of a, and certainly New York City has never had the money for the most, yeah, most Pentagon wall-to-wall computer screens, all of which were making all sorts of funny beeping noises for absolutely no logical reason, except that something happens on any computer screen in a movie. You have to have a funny beeping noise, even though why would you do that? We've all got our switches, lights, and knobs to deal with, Striker. I mean, down here, there are literally hundreds and thousands of blinking, beeping, and flashing lights. Blinking and beeping and flashing. They're flashing and they're beeping. I can't stand it anymore. They're blinking and beeping and flashing. Why doesn't somebody pull them flash? I'm all right. I'm all right. It's so nice in this film, in the original, to see, yeah, that stuff seems like what they'd be stuck with, which is old and crappy and not very... uh, it's, not, it's almost impressive. This is that it's not that impressive. The one false note, though, one false note, and I read, I was curious about this, and I looked this up. There's no graffiti in the trains, on the cars. That's the one thing, like, at the time, people howled, like, oh, come on. This is not, they're all, I read the MTA insisted, okay, you can have this shoot down here and use our subway stuff, but you can't show graffiti on the trains because it's on its way out. We've solved graffiti. It's leaving soon. It's going to be dated. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> sure. That's the one thing that's, I guess that's the one they had to concede to the MTA, but wow, it's like, no, that's not. I remember even riding the New York subway. There's still some you know, decades later, it's like, yeah, some grime on this thing. It's graffiti. So that was the one, I think the one false note, but not by lack of design. That's just by, by force. <laughs> they were not allowed to do that, to show that. Gosh, when that undercover police officer is crawling through or crawling down the tracks and you see just all that grime and grit and soot it looks like oh i mean i heard that people you know getting really sick when they were making parts of this movie the parts that were down in the tunnel i even walter math i was like oh yeah i got something that i have no idea what it was but there was something down in those tunnels i'm like oh boy oh boy that that must have been bad. Like a lot of this stuff was was actually real. This wasn't just a manufactured tunnel that they put together and then made it look old. It was, from what I understand, a real tunnel. Yeah, I think the only things that were set were some of the interior office stuff. Some of the places where they are theoretically running. I think anything that's on a platform or in a tunnel or on the street, as far as I could gather, just a few things I read that that was all real. Yeah, yeah I guess the apartment. Was a set, yeah, it's probably obvious, but even this, everything looks so lived in and so wonderful, too. So, I started to only see, oh, that's obviously a set in the streets of New York. I think the tunnel stuff was in the tra- came later the transit museum, but at the time it was just an abandoned station and had been abandoned for decades, apparently. Only later became a museum, but that even that was still pretty funky. Like, you don't want to be laying down the tracks there on a subway station that's been sealed shut for 50 years. <laughs> that's, that's not a nice afternoon for anybody. I went and I watched, tried to watch some of the other movies that were credited to John Goaty, who I can't remember the real gentleman's real name, but that was the author name. Uh, oh, I had that. Uh, Morton, Morton Friedgood. Good, yes. The nom de plume John Goaty. And he did Never a Dull Moment, the one with Dick Van Dyke, who's mistaken for a criminal, which again has an amazing cast to it. You've got Edward G. Robinson. Dick Van Dyke, as I already mentioned, Henry Silva, 
Slim Pickens, Jack Elam, who was in so many of the Disney movies. So this was a Buena Vista classic. And then I tried to watch Johnny Handsome, and I was just having a real hard time making it through Johnny Handsome. Maybe I just need to give it another shot. But I, after watching Bullet earlier this year with Mickey Rourke in that, it just feels like Mickey Rourke is in a war against his own face, and Johnny Handsome is yet another siege on his own face with just being under so much makeup in that movie. I, I, it pains me to say this. As a novelist, I always want to side the novelist. The book's always better. Not the case here. I got to say, Peter Stone's script gives this, the most memorable things came from Peter Stone. The color codes of the criminals, that was all, that was not in the book. They had names, you know. And of course, the cold, that's all Peter Stone. That's not part of the, uh, the book as well. Quite a few other things. I don't know. I read through the book a bit. I read through the script a bit. And it's like, wow, you see that evolution. It's like, okay, this is something else than the book. John Gotti, Morton Friedgood, he was, I think, 60 when this book came out in 1973. He was like, he's, again, a bit of a dinosaur himself as far as a writer. He'd written a lot of popular fiction. He was a publicist for the studios for a long time. I don't think he wasn't a, a cutting edge crime writer. He wasn't like Elmore Leonard back then. He wasn't like Richard Stark or Donald West. Like, he was a journeyman, I think, writer, it felt like. And again, it pains me to say this, but man, the film is so much better than the book. <laughs> I hate saying that. Yeah, the book is very, very long, too. I- like I said, I listened to it, and I want to say it was eight hours long, which is pretty good size for an audiobook. And yeah, very surprising. It just, like I said, there's a lot of that dialogue or internal dialogue from so many people, especially the train passengers. And I like that you don't get a whole lot of them. You know, you talked about the people from Speed. I feel we get to know some of them a little bit more, you know, Alan Ruck, you know, I like that there's not those aren't the familiar faces. You know, the character actors are outside of the train other than, you know, our four main baddies. You don't necessarily know all of these passengers inside. And I think we're okay for that. And plus that also helps keep the mystery of who is the actual undercover police officer too. We're with you. But when I was watching the Tony Scott version, for example, I felt like the original, yes, you don't get to know the passengers, but somehow they're not just anonymous. Felt like in the Tony Scott version, it was just like, even though you actually spend some more time on some of them, they all felt like types. They all felt like, I felt like the people in the Joe Sargent version, you could have told their story. To me, I love in a movie when you see people, it can be an extra, and you feel like if you wanted to, you could follow that person's story, and it just makes them feel real. And I felt that way with the passengers, and I don't quite know what the trick that of it is. But whether it was the clothing, whether it's they picked actually very good, experienced actors, even though a lot of those characters had no lines at all or whatever. But without spending any time or exposition or explaining who any of them are or whatever, I still felt like they were a bunch of real people. Whereas time we got to the more modern version, it felt, oh, there's literally just like cardboard cutouts put there that we they, there's no sense of humanity. And somehow, I think in the original without ever doing the thing of let's set up the victims, I still, you still have some sense empathy for them as people in that situation. It's interesting. I actually, for me, replicates at the moment where like in a subway train, you don't really pay attention to your fellow passengers because that's not what you do in New York. You just keep your own counsel. You do your thing, get your book, listen to your music. And it's almost an arm's length to everybody. You don't want to get too close. Whereas the Tony Scott version is like, they intentionally put you in their lives. You're in their faces, the little boys, Older brother, younger brother. It's like, oh, there's so, my heart's breaking for them. It's also though, you wouldn't do that in a subway train, is what I'm saying. You wouldn't really care that much about, unless some shit goes down. You have to, 
we're all human, but it's also the same point. You want to just fuzz out and not get to where you're going. And the first one felt like that. Like, I don't want to know your story necessarily. And ironically, at least to me, with the Tony Scott version, because I felt like I was being told, feel empathetic for this old kid. Feel I didn't because I, I felt like I was being directed to have a reaction. Whereas in the original, when I see the people there, they look scared and they, I feel for them as a group, even though I'm not involved with them. I actually believe, oh, there's a bunch of, yeah, that would be really scary. Wow. The second I'm told, look at this sweet old man. Look at this sweet little kid. I'm like, okay, yeah, you're now, now I'm very aware I'm watching a movie and that you're trying to get me to have a reaction. And what's funny is, and I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people, when a movie says, have this reaction, I think is often a DVD pull back. Don't try, to, don't try to manipulate me to have that reaction. I, and I think the lack of effort actually makes me more care more in the first. It's, it's yeah, a bunch of people I feel bad for. Here comes the airplane. Here it comes. Just with the pablum right on the end. Eat it up. All right. It feels like we're champing at the bit to talk about the remake. So let's go ahead and take a break. And we'll be right back after an interview with Sal Viscuso right after these brief messages. Remember the stories that kept you awake at night? I'm living in that closet, Dr. Fenner. Can you still hear the screams? I love having the children for dinner. All from your television set. In the night gallery. A dark side. Midnight Viewing. The horror anthology podcast. Join hosts Father Malone, Mike White, and Chris Stashew as they exhume some of the most infamous horror television of all time. Midnight Viewing from Weirding Way Media. Until next time. I'm so curious how you decided to get into acting. So imagine this only child, St. Mary's Star of the Sea in Brooklyn, in Red Hook. Dad was a longshoreman, left my mom and me when I was fairly young. Young Irish immigrant Franciscan brothers ran it. Still there. School is gone. Hopefully they're all dead. And they picked on me because I is the loudest mouth. I'll give you one example. You've got to learn the whole days of obligation. How come you don't know the whole days of obligation? I went home. I didn't even know what the word meant. I looked it up, the definition. Went back the next day. They said, do you know what the whole days of obligation are? Did you learn them? And I go, no. They said, no. I said, but I know what the definition of, of obligation is. And they said, yeah. And they said, and they said, what is it? I said, I don't feel obligated. And I got hit all over again. That, in a nutshell, Salvatore Donato, Anthony Stefanelli, Philip Tesserero, Louis Tanani, Angelo DeTrento, Salvis Gusso, we all got hit. Robert Ramsey was spared. Gabish? Okay. My mother moved me to Sacramento when I was 11 and a half in June 60 because her sister, my late Aunt Madeline, had moved there with her Sicilian husband because he had family there and their kids. And she said to my mom, I guess, I wasn't privy to that conversation. He's going to be a teenager soon. I was going to be 12. And why don't you come and stay with us? I never got to say goodbye to my dad. I don't remember if I even got to say goodbye to any of my friends. It was horrible. And so I'm in this Sacramento, California. What the hell am I doing here? I sounded different than everybody else. I dressed different. I had been inspired by a West Side story by related to the Sharks, not the Jets. So I'm trying to, I've had curly hair and I'm trying to comb it back and it's popping out. And I got a purple shirt, black pants, black pointy shoes. I wasn't a mobster, 
but I was trying to dress like them. And so all the other kids, their dads bought them like Chevy Impalas and they were in surfer clothes and they had the hair like Beach Boys. I did okay, just try to imagine in the 60 World Series when the Yankees are playing the Pirates, seventh game of the World Series, bottom of the ninth in Pittsburgh, Mazarowski hits a home run. I'm the only one crying. And they're all making fun of me because the only team that they were close to from Sacramento was the San Francisco Giants, a National League team. You got it? Okay. I hated it. My mother says, okay, we're going to move back to New York. So get through one quarter, one semester of my seventh grade junior high school, Fern Bacon Junior High School, but it was co-ed. So already I was starting to blossom. February 61, we moved back to New York. Now we stay with my grandma in the Bronx. I'm in another Catholic school. Our savior. I got through it. It's July. I get taken to my first professional baseball game. I got to go to Yankee Stadium, 61, big year for the Yanks. And I said to my mom, I hate it. I want to go back to California. So my mother let me. And in junior high school, I will see Wood at the new junior high school. My either was my homeroom or my English teacher. It was the day before George Washington's birthday. She hands me a poem. She says, Here, read this. It's an Italian immigrant. You could do this. He's in New York. I sounded like Chico Marx and the Marx Brothers. And, and it was an homage to George Washington and a grateful Italian-American immigrant that I was in America, right? The class laughed. And it was the first time that I associated what came out of my mouth as a good thing. Heretofore, I'd always been hit. Put into the clothes closet, chalk thrown at me, sit in the corner with my back to the class, right on the blackboard. I will keep my big fat mouth shut a hundred times and the late Anne Frank had something similar. She was a chatterbox and she had to stand up and write on the blackboard. So when I was in therapy, which I still am, I told the therapist who's Jewish about it. And I said, can you imagine Anne Frank went through this too? So anyway, that was the first time that I was performing. And the next day we did it in front of the whole assembly. 400 people were laughing and clapping for me. Okay, cut to... Senior year high school, Hiram Johnson, Sacramento, my best friend, Brad Miller, said to me, hey, I'm doing this play called Our Hearts Are Young and Gay. And Mrs. Seymour, the drama teacher, is looking for a guy who's loud and funny. And if you got it, you get to kiss the head cheerleader, Sandy Byersdorfer, because she was casting it. Sandy Byersdorfer, the head cheerleader, didn't know I existed. I got the part. And I kept trying to finagle rehearsal time so we could kiss. She never did it. But when we got to do the two performances, she was a great kisser. That was it. Go to college, freshman quarter, fall 66 Davis. Almost flunk out, 1.4 grade point average. I had to take the bonehead English. I had to take a science class, flunk both of those. That's eight units down the toilet. And got a D in history at a 1.4 grade point average. I was put on probation. People liked me. They said, we got to figure out a way to keep you in college. They got me through the second quarter. I learned how to study. I learned how to divide up my time properly. It's the last day before the fresh first quarter of the last quarter of our freshman year. I'm watching The Final War of Ollie Winter, a teleplay written by Howard Rodman, starring the late Ivan Dixon, who was one of the only two blacks on network TV. He was on Hogan's Heroes. Bill Cosby being the other on I Spy. And I'm watching with my friend Ginger Drake. We're both a mess at the end of this thing. Hence the title, The Final War of Ollie Winter, who was a soldier in Vietnam. You can imagine. I was crying. I was a mess. I pointed to her. I said, Ginch, I got to do this. 
I got to do this. She said, they're having auditions in the drama department tomorrow. Why don't you come with me? I'll go, okay. So I went with her. I walked in. I had super short hair, Italian Catholic conservative family. And everybody else had these beards and long hair. There was a beautiful blonde with granny glasses. I noticed I was watching. She wasn't wearing a bra. She looked really fantastic. I was a, I was a virgin. I was 17 years old. What the hell do I know? I was 18. I was 18. And um, I did this reading and they got up and they hugged me. And they said, who are you? Where have you been? How come we've never seen you in the drama? I felt like I found my family. And that was how I got to acting. I'm sorry I'm so damn long-winded, but that's really the truth. Those were the key moments. Ivan Dixon's performance, it did something to me, and I just knew I had to do it. Gabish? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. Tend to ask a lot of people, how did you get into acting? And it's usually a combination, like you're saying, like pretty girls, Addiction to Sandy, applause. Sandy Byersdorfer. Sandy yeah. Byersdorfer, who did not know I existed because she was going out with my paisan, Nikki Piagentini, who I think was a quarterback on our high school football team. So Nikki and Sandy were like this. Nikki and I were pals, but I didn't exist as far as she was concerned. Okay. Same class we were in. She, I was invisible. So you come in, you get the hug. They're just like, you found your tribe. I so did. You- you and just, I got cast in three of the four plays, and I felt, and here's crazy stuff. I married a second time, and I met my wife in a painting group. And if you saw my website, I also paint. Bev, who's now a therapist, at 57, she reinvented herself, became a therapist. The night that the play, one of the, the plays, our plays opened in Davis was June 2nd, 67. I'm an idiot savant about dates. And it was the night that Sergeant Pepper was released. So here I am, 18 listening to Sergeant Pepper with all these pretty college girls. And I found later when I met my wife, she's nine years younger. So she's in upstate New York, jumping rope at nine. And I'm 18 in college. Isn't that funny? And now we're married. She's now 68 and I'm going to be 75. It's, it's crazy. Just she's nine. I'm 18. Yeah. I remained a virgin for two more years. Thank you very much. <laughs> so you throw yourself in full bore and become what a drama major and you're just like this is what no, I'm no, no, do? no wait my late best friend who i met that spring of 67 scott rubenstein only child jew from brooklyn connects with an only child italian from brooklyn best of friends he said i'm majoring in poli sci it's one of the few majors that you don't have to write a dis- paper at the end so just major, just come and I'll take notes. You go off and do your plays and I'll take notes. And then at the end of each quarter, he would give me his notes. I'd cram because I was never in any of those classes because I was only in rehearsal. I got better grades than he did. And he went to every class, but he was, he believed in me and he was a pal. I majored in poli sci. That's what I did. For example, one of the classes I took I never went because it was on McCarthy and ism. And I was always rehearsing every Monday night. And the teacher said to me at the end of the court, he liked my work because he used to bring me his daughter to see me in the place. He said, what did you learn? I said, and I noticed he had paperweight collection on his desk. I said, tell your secretary, you're busy for the next hour. And it was pass or fail then. So he told her, I taught him how to juggle because I had just learned how to juggle in a play that I had just done. A, a Comedia dell'arte with Carlo Mazzoni Clemente taught me how to juggle. And I played Brighella, who was a murderer and a cook. I'm a cook, not a murderer in real life. 
And I taught him how to juggle with the paperweights. He gave me a passing grade in the class because I showed him I did learn something that quarter, although I never went to one of the 10 classes on the blacklist. I did what I had to do. Hey, I did what I had to do. I was always fast on my feet. I was fast on my feet the way I talked, but I wasn't an athlete. I used my speed other ways. I mean, that summer of 69, I had to make up 12, those 12 units, eight of those 12. And I flunked another class somewhere along the line. I'm in Berkeley that summer. I'm going to become a senior if I can get through that quarter. The draft board was bearing down on me. Okay. I made up the 12 units. And in the class, I wrote, I don't know, do you remember where the Smothers Brothers were? The comedian? Well, they had a variety show on and they brought on Pete Seeger, who had been blacklisted and they did some radical stuff with George Carlin. They got taken off the air. And I wrote a paper for the poli sci class. Today, the Smothers Brothers, tomorrow, the Lenin sisters. And the TA who was from Czechoslovakia, right before Czechoslovakia was invaded with the tanks with the Russians. He said, TA said to me, I I can't grade this. You're going to have to perform this play, all the characters for the teeth for our for your art uh, my my boss teacher and i basically played all the characters and he gave me a name so passing grade so this did what i had to do this whatever came up i did that's how i got to college fortunately my senior year the month after kent state where it was kent state was may 4th 70 right and then june i graduated i didn't know how i was going to get to the last quarter fortunately i was sleeping with my anthropology teacher patty abrams and she said listen you're doing Merchant of Venice. Go give a speech. Learn Shylock's speech because it's about humanity and anthropology. And go give, give it to my TA and I'll give you a passing grade. So I learned the Shylock speech, even though I was playing Lancelot Gabo, the son, the crazy wayward son of Father Gabo, and who couldn't make up his mind which way he was, which personality he had. And I got a passing grade in, in the anthropology class. That was the science that I made up for four years previous. That I flunked freshman quarter because you were required to take a science class. I stretched out those 12 science units over four years. That's how I got to college. Okay. I auditioned for NYU Neighborhood Playhouse. CalArts was starting in Valencia. I'd read about Disney financing this brand new school. I wanted to stay in California. And I didn't get accepted there. But I got accepted at NYU and Neighborhood Playhouse. I auditioned for NYU. I had to do a song, so I sang, I get by with a little help my friends. I managed to get in there. Peter Casson, late Lloyd Richards. Lloyd was famous because he directed a lot of the early August Wilson plays, just so you know. And he went on to found, he ran Yale Rep, and then he ran the Eugene O'Neill Center. He was a great man, a great director. Anyway, addition for them, got it to NYU. And one of my teachers, the late John Heffernan, he got me his agent before I left NYU. So May 73, when I graduated, graduate school, I already had an agent. And within a month, the day after I met this agent, he goes, so, named Mike Roscoe. He says, sorry, kid, I can't help you to Etnik. That's spelled E-T-N-I-K. You got to change your name. I looked, I said, change my name? What are you out of your mind? My grandpa, Salvatore Vescuso from Machi Castello, Sicilia, Sicilia, Sicily. I'm going to change my name. Next day, I booked my first national commercial with Dominic Rossetti, the director, and Jimmy Borelli, who was Sonny, playing Sonny Lattieri in Greece on Broadway. Avant Ghoul, Mike Roscoe. Okay? Okay. A month later, 
I had Dominic and his wife, Lorraine, gone now. May they rest in peace. Over for dinner, he called me up. He says, hey, meet me at Paul and Jimmy's on Irving Place. We're going to dinner. I got to talk to you about something. So we go to Paul and Jimmy's, really cool place, very low-key mob. And, it's, and he says, what are you doing on Tuesday? This is Sunday. I go, I don't know why. He says, what, you're busy, Mr. Big Shot? You got one commercial, you're a big shot now. No, Dom. He said, I want you to do another commercial. I go, really? He goes, yeah. I said, I got a problem. He says, what problem? I said, I got to join this union. I didn't even know what the union was called. And he goes, that's not a problem. Lorraine, find out how much money it is. Give him the money. Next day, I called this union. was called Screen Actors Guild SAG, right? I called him. I said, how much? They said, 300. I call up Lorraine. Lorraine says, come on over. In her bag, she's got many $100 bills. That's everyone dealt with cash. Then you and cash. Pulls up, peels off three $100 bills. I split. I go over to SAG, Screen Actors Guild, pay him 300 bucks. Next day, I shot the commercial. Four months later, Dominic calls me up. He says, I'm using Jimmy again. You're busy. We're going out of town. Utica Club Beer. Come, you'll be gone all weekend. Made 1400 bucks. It was able to pay him back the 300 But a boom. That same week I got back from the commercial, I got Pelham one, two, three. Alex Gordon, Alex Gordon. And check this out. She wanted me to play the conductor and fought with Joe Sargent about it. But Joe wanted his friend, the younger guy, I don't remember his name, to play the conductor. But the conductor gets killed. I got to live and I got to deliver the ransom. So my mother was glad I didn't get killed. She already gave me enough grief, enough grief four years later, five years later, playing Father Tim on soap. I left the priesthood. My mother was devastated because one of her fantasies was that I was a priest. Still blamed the producers to her dying day that they wrote me out of the priesthood and made me become married to Corinne. And then she went ballistic when I dropped when she dropped me off the show. But that's a whole other thread. That's how I got Pelham. Jeff Hunter. Jeff Hunter was my agent. You go, Jeff, who's Jeff Hunter? When they did Mad Men and John Hamm's wife was an actress. And this is how smart, this is how period conscious they were. You know what her agent name was? Jeff Hunter. Because he was the biggest, one of the biggest independent agents at the time. And when I met him, he had his outdoor office, a guy there, and Jeff, two open doors. And I didn't know that Jeff was on the other side. So I'm meeting this guy, Otis Otis. He says, I'll give Jeff your information. I guess Jeff heard me. And he came on, he goes, just come on and I got to meet you. And that was it. That Things happen like that. Okay. He got me an audition with Dustin Hoffman for All Over Town, the one play that Dustin was going to do on Broadway that ended up not doing. And Ulu Grossbard took over and did that. We then directed Dustin in. Yeah. See? All this stuff like this happened. And when I met Dustin, I couldn't even talk. It was like Ratso Rizzo. Forget Benjamin. Ratso Rizzo. Salvatore Ratso Rizzo from Midnight Cowboy. Forget it. Okay. He says, calm down. He says, put the script down. He said, I want you to go run to Central Park and come back and then just knock on my door. My secretary will let you in. You're the only one I'm seeing this morning as a favorite to Jeff. He says, I had to meet you. So I ran to Central Park in the middle of summer. I'm soaking wet. A couple secretaries knock on the door because he wanted to see me because he saw, he realized that I had learned the whole script and that he wanted to see me without being self-conscious about the script. He wanted to see Sal. He wanted to see Sal. You understand? Because I was like, Dustin, Ratso Rizzo, Benjamin. It's like, in 76, I met Ann Bancroft. And, and she says, I told her how, how anxious I was because I had seen The Graduate. She says, this is Annie. May she rest in peace. Anna Marie Italiano from the Bronx. She said, 
So I turned you on, huh, Sally? And I blushed, apparently. That's another thread, how I got Fatso Spaceballs and World's Greatest Lover because of a dinner at Carl Reiner's house because I cook for Carl Reiner. And in the summer of 76, the bicentennial summer, my wife, first wife, Tessie, who's my best friend, even though we're not married anymore, we house sat for Carl Reiner. And when I met Carl, I got the Montefusco's, right? The first series in 75. Okay, summer of, right before the summer of 76, I get a call from this woman who's the mother of one of the kids who play one of my nephews on the show. I played the out-of-work actor, Nunzio Montefusco. And she says, my son and Carl Reiner's son are friends. And Carl Reiner's son, Lucas, was telling my son that Carl and, and Norman Lear are going to go to China and they need it. And Carl needs a dog sitter at his house. And I recommended you and Tessie went over. So Carl, the Jew from the Bronx, Sal, the Italian from Brooklyn. What did we talk about? Food. And next thing he says, you make fresh pasta? I go, yeah. And he goes, you want to cook for me and some friends? I go, yeah. He gets up, goes to his desk, roll a deck. You'll explain to your listeners who are 12 what the roller deck is. And he goes, hello, Mel. I got this kid here. He's not really a kid. He's 25 or something, but he's an actor. His name is Salvatore Vescuso. Sal Vescuso. Is it okay if I call you Sally? Anyway, Mel, Sally Vescuso. And he and his wife are probably going to house sit for me and take care of Buffy, our dog. And he says he cooks. You want to bring Annie over on Saturday night? You're busy. Great. Hangs up. Hello, Dom. Deloise, you and Carol free on Saturday? I got this blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, you can bring your mother. Okay. We make fresh pasta, my meatballs, in Brajol, in Carl Reiner's massive kitchen. Mel Brooks, Ann Brancroft, Carl, 2,000-year-old man, Estelle Reiner, Dom, his wife, Carol, and Dom's mother, and Tess and me. And in the dinner, Ann yells to him, Mel, get your goddamn bread out of my plate. And I remember Mel had a pale blue cufflink, beautiful dress shirt, and he had sauce all over his cuff. I got space balls out of that dinner, Fatso, the only movie Annie directed, and World's Greatest Lover that Gene Wilder directed, and he wasn't even at that meal. Two things I have to tell you about that, for those people who are listening to this. If they didn't like my food, even if they liked me, it would have been okay. The fact that they loved my food and they loved me who was like blah, 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 unable to put two words together as I'm sitting next to Ann Bancroft, Mrs. Robinson, Mel, who she said, Mel, I want to sit. I want Sally to sit in between us. I want Sally, who I just met her. She already adopted me. And when we did Fatso at Fox every Friday, she had Italian bread flown in from the neighborhood. I would cook for everybody, the cast and the crew. Very special. And they had a picnic that Carl would organize, Bill Persky, who was one of the producers of the Montefuscos, and he and Sam Denoff, who used to write for Dick Van Dyke show. We all met Martin Landau when he was married to Barbara Bain, right in the Rancho Park, right opposite 20th Century Fox. And I cooked and I met everybody. And they just, it was really wonderful. Albert Brooks was there. You wouldn't even believe, you can imagine. <clears throat> you can imagine. <clears throat> all out of my meatballs and lasagna and brujol, Carl Reiner's house. And Georgie Shapiro, may rest in peace, Carl's nephew, who was Seinfeld's manager. Georgie used to come over, and he took my ex-wife and me to see our first Rolling Stones show with Lucas Reiner at the Forum in 76. Georgie was great. Georgie was a mensch, really 
beautiful guy. Just beautiful guy. All these good people, all these New York people <clears throat> judging you <clears throat> on just who you are. Not a version of who you are. Not an ideal. I'm going to act a certain way in front of. No. The raw as you are. Present tense. And that's the only way I've ever been. And I met Calf from MASH at Julia Taylor's, who was Marion Doherty's number one casting director. And she and Gretchen Rennell, she being Juliet Taylor, cast most of Woody Allen movies. And Juliet would call Jeff Hunter to Jeff. Sal needs to meet this guy. He's from California. Didn't tell me anything else about him. And he needs to meet Sal. He's not real. Sal's not really right for any part in this pilot, but they need to meet each other. And it was Burt Metcalf, the associate producer of MASH in summer of 76. Cause I wrote Burt and he said, you, I still have the envelope with the 20th century Fox logo on it. And he said, you're very talented. If I could ever do anything for you when you come to LA, look me up. And sure enough, we're at Carl's. Dale Drive, and I get a call. He says, you want to come in and do an episode of MASH, Sal? And I go, yeah. And it was July 76. And I went out to the ranch, which was like Korea out in Malibu. And I got to do it. And he says, hey, and I want you to come over and I want you to record this. The guy we used to use to record got a TV series, Todd Sussman, who had done it the first bunch of years, the loudspeaker uncredited voice. So that ended up becoming my gig for the next four years. And then I got notoriety on soap. So I became known as the loudspeaker voice for MASH, even though Todd had done it the first bunch of years. And then I did it for four years and then he ended up doing it the last two or three. So that's how that happened. People were just, okay, just, yeah, yeah. I was very fortunate and very grateful. It would, things happened easily for me. I didn't struggle really until I got into my 50s and 60s as I became an old white guy, which there's not a lot of room for us old white guys right now. But you know what? I don't begrudge anybody who's been invisible or marginalized. I just watched the first episode of Reservation Reservation Dogs about the Indies in Oklahoma. It's brilliant. Brilliant. Who knew? Taylor Sheridan, 1923, having that one thread about how the Native Americans were forced into Christian schools. Who knew about any of that brutality? I experienced a version of brutality in Catholic school in Brooklyn, but nothing like what those Native Americans went through. Mine was not even on the radar compared to what they went through. I'm not comparing my being treated like a piece of meat compared to what happened to them. Please, I'm being very clear about that. But I'm still finding work. I'm doing View from the Bridge right now. Ray Abruzzo, who was a little Carmine on The Sopranos, plays Eddie Carbone. I'm Alfieri, is Consiglieri. It's a wonderful opportunity for me at the Ruskin Theater here out in Santa Monica, where Rob, the kid from Northern Exposure, Rob Morrow, yep. he, did, he just did Death of a Salesman there. It's nice, nice, high-profile theater. A little intimate theater. It's family-run. John Ruskin runs it. Mikey Myers is a producer and my director, Mike Riley, and they also have an acting school there. And we open on August 18th. So you little rascal, you find yourself and your wife out here in California between August 18th or whatever, I'll get you tickets. And we're still, we're in the middle of rehearsal in that right now. Tell me more about your experience on uh, Pelham. I want to know what that That's was like for you. We shot it in an abandoned subway tunnel in Brooklyn in the dead of the winter. And my biggest fear was that giant rats the size of cats 
were going to be crawling out all over me on the tracks. And I couldn't say or do anything. And there would be these giant cockroaches just crawling everywhere. None, not a single one, because nothing could survive down there because it had been abandoned for like 40 years. The most frightening thing was the first time those machine guns went off. Because right before it, I met Robert Shaw and Marty Balsam and Hector Elizondo. They were great gentlemen. Just said, you're going to get a little freaked out. It's going to be deafening. Just try and keep your shit together. And we'll try not to make it too bad. And we'll try not to run off too many rounds during too many takes. They were really great about that. After a while, I stopped hearing it, but not really. I was terrified the whole time. Every second, I was scared to death. So if you look at the footage and and he's got, huh? I was scared. Those guns were very real to me, even though those rounds were not real, apparently. And those third rails, I treated them like they were third rails. Everything was treated very seriously, very legitimately. No one was playing around. And when we shot up on the street, when I was handed the bag, Kenny McMillan, who I saluted him and we had, that was improvised. Great guy and great acting teacher. And I learned about it and became one of my mentors just from meeting him that day on the set. Joe Sargent was wonderful. Every No one treated me like I was green behind the ears. And all I was making SAG minimum was like 134 a day. And yes, I still had that one page contract. It, I felt like a million dollars. It felt like a million dollars. I was working and imagine me a year, two years later, a year later, seeing Jaws, and there's Robert Shaw on the boat, the very guy that held the machine gun in my face. It is pretty special. I only regret that he never got to work with Walter Matthau. But check this out. Who played my mother on soap? Doris Roberts, who was in the taking of Fallon 1, 2, 3. So it's just so many. I got to be on the picture. It was drop and pick up. So I got to be on it like two or three times. It's still it was still one of the greatest experiences I ever had in my life. I didn't have a lot of lines, but it didn't matter. I just it set the stage on when you work with real professionals who are just doing their job. I imagine if I ever had the fortune of working with Marty Ball, Marty Scorsese and Bobby De Niro, whom I both I met them both for Raging Bull. I auditioned for them for Raging Bull. And Juliet Taylor set up that meeting through New York. I would imagine would be the same kind of work ethic. I worked, I met Martin Ritt, blacklisted during the thing. I met him for a movie. Everyone on that level, Robert Altman, I did Three Women. I was treated like I was a major movie star. And on set, they treated everybody equally. I did Matthew Broderick's first picture. Jason Robards, Donald Sutherland, Marsha Mason play the baseball coach. Max Dugan returns. I was treated the same way as those principals. That was on every major film that I did, even though I didn't have big parts, between 75 and 80, I was treated like that. Only when I was around a lot of lower budget things where people aspired to be more than they actually were, was I treated like, and they treated other people like Unless they perceived them as being important to further their career, they would treat them somewhat disdainly.
been to a couple of retro screenings of Pelham 123, and it's really nice to be asked to speak. I certainly didn't have a major role, but apparently that was one of the great early 70s films. And look who was our, our cinematographer, Owen Roisman, French Connection, Exorcist. And he was great to me, too. He told me how to position myself so I get maximum exposure when they did the close-ups and stuff, because it was my first movie. I didn't know. And what's funny, when my dad passed away, summer of 74, he didn't live long enough to see the premiere of Pelham. I had to go to Florida where he passed to clean out his belongings. And he had the paperback of Pelham 123, because in one of the pictures, I'm on the cover where I'm being handed the ransom. And he had it saved, and he had wanted me to sign it. I know. I know, right? Bittersweet. Another show that I got to do three or four episodes of. I started, the first time I did Barney in 76, I had four lines. Danny Arnold and I, the producer, may rest in peace. We really connected. And he ended up writing parts for me subsequently on the show. So whoever's listening, there's no such thing really as small parts. There really isn't. You could. It's what you make out of everything you do. And if you bring a commitment to it, and you're a team player. Reminds me of the line when John Fogarty came back in the song Centerfield, put me in, coach, I'm ready to play. You're a team player. People will respond to you. Yeah, what can I do? Yeah, it's let's put on a play. Yeah, yeah. Like in what? It's a Wonderful Life. When, what's his name? The son who went off to become the war hero. Now, George says, where are you going with my place? Ma, I'm chairman of the Eats Committee. Everybody can't do enough to make it happen. That's the ethic that I was brought up in. There's no accident. I was treated like family on the set of Pelham 123. I was treated like family on Fatso. Robert Altman treated me like family, even though I was hired basically to do improvs for a week in Palm Springs. I didn't have any real lines, but he had heard about me in this theater group that Ralph Wal- Ralph Waite, who was the father in the Waltons, he ran this theater. And he recommended me to Robert Altman because Robert Altman's sister was associate director at Ralph Waite's theater. Look at these things. And suddenly I'm playing backgammon and smoking grass with Robert Altman in, in Palm Springs, all because of my improvisatory skills in a little tiny theater with 90 seats in, in LA. That's awesome. So yeah, please well, tell me, how did you get the role? I'm so curious. Oh, I met a woman who ran, who was a casting director for a theater in New York called The American Place. And the late Wynn Hanman, who was a very famous New York acting teacher, who was my acting teacher in a briefly in the summer of 74, his casting director connected with me. And she went on to become a director. She did a Jules Pfeiffer play called Hold Me. And she was doing it in California. And she said, would you like to do it? I said, yeah. She was doing it in San Francisco. So I went up to San Francisco, Got flew up on a Sunday. Monday, the theater's dark. Tuesday morning, I go, where's Tuesday morning? Where's Wednesday morning? Where's Thursday morning? Because I was replacing the guy in the play. Thursday morning, I get a call from the company manager and saying, you need to come upstairs. You need to call your agent in LA. Call the agent in LA. And he says, you have to come back tomorrow morning. These producers of soap, this TV series want to see you. 
they're filming it. It's not a pilot. I go, I'm not coming back. She, and he goes, why? She, and I said, because I had read for them for the part of their brother who thinks he's in the mafia for Danny. And they passed on me. Could you imagine they passed on me for the Italian kid, wannabe mafia kid? Little did I know. And the agent said to me, what time do you have to be at the theater? I said, I have to be at the theater at 7.30. He says, I'm calling you at 7.25. You really, will they pay my way? I go, no. He says, I'll call you at 7.25. 7.25, the phone rings. I'm eating focaccia from Liguria Bakery. That's another story. I love to eat. Focaccia is one of my favorite foods. And uh, anyway, that's still there in San Francisco, North Beach, right opposite Washington Square. He said, listen. I've got a good feeling about this. They taped the show on Tuesday. They're desperate. You should come back. I don't really know if I heard any of that. I flew myself back the next morning. I go and I read. They said, would you mind waiting outside? I go outside. Somebody new walks into the room. Come back. They get me. Come in. I read. They go, is it true you have to take a one o'clock flight back to San Francisco? I go, yeah. I got to rehearse. I got to rehearse tomorrow. I got to rehearse Sunday. And then Tuesday, I got to open in this play. He said, would you mind not going back to the airport yet? It was already 11 o'clock. Could you go wait outside? Go wait outside. Another person walks in. It's a beautiful woman. I remember she had, she has like parachute pants, very stylishly dressed, long red curly hair, glasses. It's beautiful. Call me back in. I read again. They start laughing. She starts laughing. They go, do you really have to take that flight at one o'clock? I go, well, yeah. They go, all right, do us a favor. Just hang tight. Go back outside for a minute. They call me right back in. They said, look, just call San Francisco back and just tell them you might be late. I go, okay. I drove basically 10 minutes from the studio to my house. By the time I walked into my house, my wife, Tess, said, honey, you have to get this phone call. I got on the phone, it's the casting director saying, you're going to ABC Network for Pam Dixon and Marcy Carsey, Carsey Werner, who went on to do Roseanne, Golden Girl. And you're the only one that they're reading for Father Tim. I showered. I drove to Century City where ABC was at the time. Pam Dixon, Marcy Carsey, the producers were there waiting outside this big glass window. They hugged me so they could see the audition. Doors closed. I go in for the two women. I read. They start laughing. They get up and hug me. The producers get up, come in and grab me. One hour later, I'm doing soap. Called San Francisco. I said, I'm not coming back. And she goes, yeah, I had a feeling you weren't coming back. We've already got someone to replace you. Flew up to San Francisco, picked up my suitcase, and got back to L.A., Tuesday, I had my first episode, me in the confessional, saying to God, is this a test? A couple of months later, soap is going to air. We have the premiere party, and the late Fred Silverman, who ran ABC, was standing next to me. We were at Bob Seagram, who was the Olympic gold medalist who played Billy Crystal's gay lover in soap. He, we're at Bob Seeger's big house, right? Okay, with the big giant screen TV. And Fred's standing next to me, and he goes, I got to tell you, Sal, you're really wonderful, but you may not get on the air. These Christian fundamentalists who never read the scripts, who've never seen any of our episodes, 
have this script that they have written about a priest who commits sins and has an affair with a woman in a church. None of which happened. Tony Thomas, one of our producers, Danny Thomas of the Danny Thomas Show's son, is Catholic. And we weren't going to violate anything. In fact, one of my soap episodes where I'm kneeling down in the church and I'm praying in Latin, I use my actual confirmation missile because the whole episode was me only speaking in Latin where Corinne is hitting on me and saying, Al Pacino, and I used to get more excited in my praying, but I'm only praying in Latin. That was my favorite soap episode, and I didn't even speak in English. And Tony and I would discuss what we could do and what we couldn't do. Isn't that something? That's how I got soap. And these are all true stories. Yeah, I'm a lucky man. I have to pinch myself sometimes. I can't. And I'm going to be 75. Can you believe it? Did I do justice to what you wanted to know? You did. This was so wonderful talking with you. I hope we can do it again sometime. Look, I hope I can shut up next time so I can, you can actually do your job. I feel like I've monopolized this conversation. Oh, this is great. Who wants to hear me? They want to hear you. So this is perfect. All right. Listen, I want to just give a plug to my buddy, Jeff Maxwell, who did 89 episodes as Igor on MASH. He's got the MASH Matters podcast. And listen to me on there, too. It's really great. And Ryan Patrick, his buddy in upstate Illinois or downstate Illinois, they got it going. It's really wonderful. MASH Matters. Okay? Jeff Maxwell, Igor, 89 episodes, MASH. He runs it. Okay? Call me anytime. I really, truly hope I didn't make this crazy lopsided podcast. Oh, this is great. I don't know. You don't shut me up. I keep talking. I love it. I love it. I, this has been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. I adore you. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to need the R train to switch over to the express tracks at 34th Street. Unlock the door, do it now, or I'll kill you. Everybody out! This side's facing the window. Control center, call him Pelham 123. Why'd you stop 123? You're all green ahead. Rail control center, do you read me? Who is this? This is a man who's gonna give the city a run for the money. Now, what is the price for New York City hostages this morning? What do you think, a million a piece is too high? Oh, I'm not a hostage negotiator. I'm a civil service employee. Oh, I think you'll do just fine. Now, what time do you got on your watch? 2.13. 59 minutes, I'm gonna start killing passengers. You don't want innocent people dying, do you? You tell me. Life is simple now. They just have to do what I say. Call the mayor now. Somebody just hijacked Pelham 123. <laughs> you don't think this was fate, you and me? You know, I'm just a guy. I'm just a guy on the other end of the mic. <laughs> I do like you, man. You may be the last friend I ever make. How are you going to get the money here? They're shutting down every intersection from here to Brooklyn. The money's on the way. Look out! Now somebody else has to die. Those cops are going to be down that tunnel. Get an easy shot, please advise. Let them unload on me. I want to make you a deal. I will trade you for all these passengers. You don't have to do this. They want me to take the money down to the tunnel. You do what you have to do, but we need milk. So on your way home, I want you to bring a gallon. I could get a half a gallon. I'll get a half a gallon. You're just like me, Garber. No, you use one of these? got five seconds. Okay. 
didn't know how the day was going to start. Three. I knew exactly how it was going to start. Two. Yeah, but do you know how it's going to end? One. All right, we're back and we're talking about the taking of Pelham 123. And let's talk about the first remake from 1998, a TV movie, which I was only able to find a censored version of it because I think they say ass at one point and they, they just censor it right out. You can tell that this movie is super Canadian. As soon as Kenneth Welsh's name comes up on screen, I was like, oh, it's Canada. And man, oh man, you want to talk about clean subway station. Toronto has a great, great subway system. It's very clean. And it does not have that same grit that we saw earlier in 74. 98, very, very clean version of this. Uh, though it has some great people. Richard Schiff as Mr. Green. I love Schiff a ton. Nofrio. I thought it was cool. I mean, I was like, a good, great cast, I thought. But somehow, it's a wonderful cast, but somehow does not, even though they're really good actors, they don't, they're not as effective in these roles as the people who did the originals. I love Vince D'Onofrio. I love the actors. I, I really enjoy in things, but I feel like it just doesn't have the richness of the original. I think a lot of the context is gone, whether it because it looks like it, it doesn't feel like New York and New York is such a huge character. And this feels very much like a TV movie desperately trying to fake New York. Nobody sounds like they're from New York. It just feels very generic. It feels like the road company version of the original. It's very similar in terms of story and plot. They don't change a lot. And everything is done professionally. It's like it's not embarrassing. I actually, when I saw who the cast was, oh, okay, this are good. And it's never awful. It's still a really clever story with clever twists. It just feels like the everything is one notch less good. So by the end, that adds up to, oh, it just... It's just not memorable the same way. Now, if I feel like if I saw that movie and I'd never seen the first, I wouldn't go, that was bad. I just feel two days later, I would have had a hard time telling you a lot about it. Like I would have just not. Whereas the first one, I felt like it was emblazoned in my brain forever from the first time I saw it. Even opening the opening credit sequence of the 98 version to me back, back to 1998. I'm like, this is so of its time. This is like, like you said, that this was appropriate of the time. These two weeks, this came out. <laughs> that was dead on. It was like the late 90s TV opening zippy credits, but none of that power of, and nothing like that David Shire score announcing what this is right away. It doesn't have that. It's like, what is this? Okay, we're cutting on that. There's exterior shots in New York, and it's like, oh, we're in busy New York. Everything's crazy and busy. And it, but I don't feel that kind of menace or anything else that the original had. It did feel very generic. I wanted to like it because I liked people in it, but it felt like there's some nods to the times. There was that uh, motion detector in the subway tracks, hooked up to a, a Mac Power Book or something. It was like, oh, okay, that was 98. Sure, they'd use that. Cool. <laughs> but I don't know. It wasn't that different, for sure, from the original. As far as plot mechanics, they tried. Yeah, there were some interesting twists as far as, and I don't know if this was April Smith, the, the other credited screenwriter, um, who was bringing this to the party or not. But Mr. Brown is actually Mrs. Brown, Tara Rosling playing Mr. Brown in this. Also, that we switched the Jerry Stiller character to Lorraine Bracco. So we had this kind of man-woman thing going on with her and Edward James Olmos, who is basically the Garber character, but he's Anthony P. 
Piscotti in this. Like, okay, yeah, that's kind of cool that they're doing a, a gender swap, but at the same time, it didn't bring a whole lot to the party. You know, it just made it easier for if there was a woman who was talking back, then Mr. Brown could stop, step in and tell her to shut up and it wouldn't look sexist. And it also was like they had to do the gender swap because things had changed. Again, the original that a moment when women's lib was still new and women fighting for these jobs was still new. And now by the 90s, there were women cops. There were women in your city transit. Authority. It would have been, it would have seemed weird to not do the gender swaps. It, would, it was an all white male world the way the 74 one was. It would just feel like, okay, what that seems like not real. So it didn't feel like they were doing something interesting as much as to me, it felt like they were just going along with, yeah, the world was a different place. So they had to. In some ways, if they kept it maybe all male and all, it actually might have been more interesting. I don't know, maybe some of the series resisted change and you could have actually made it, that could have been something to explore. But just, but it just felt, I guess it all just felt like, let's just do the way it would be if you did the same story now. But it had this feeling of, to me, some of both remakes into a set, it was being done for money. And I feel like the original was a story told by people with passion about the story. That both of the remakes in different ways felt like, oh, this was a big success and we could do it for the certain kind of budget. So that's a good business decision. And I felt like watching the TV movie version, it felt like a business decision. I don't feel like anybody was like, I have to tell this story and there are reasons I have to tell this story. And, I, and it's about something more than just this robbery, which the original does feel like. And this just feels, it takes the cleverness, but loses all the grit and atmosphere that made it about something more. This is one of the thing in the 70s, but like they didn't try to do a sequel where Zach Garber goes on vacation and someone hijacks the funicular. It's like his characters don't continue. It's not a sequel, Speed 2 Cruise Control. They don't do that, thank God. You know? But that's the bad way. I guess I'm happy for that. They try to remake. They didn't try to do a, a sequel. That'd be bad. Only other remake to left to make, in my opinion, I actually love to see this, is taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3, set in like 1920s or 30s. Different technology, Depression era, like almost like the gangster era. I don't know. How, it's not commercial. It's just for me personally to want to watch. But I think I would love that. That's the only way to justify, pin it to a time and place that's interesting. Not and seeing, seeing this, the most recent one, Tony Scott's version, post 9-11, the stakes aren't that as high as they, I don't know. It's people. It sounds callous. I know it sounds awful. But like we've seen some awful or horrible things by now, by 2001. So yeah, it feels a little dated in that way. Not in a good way. I found it funny that both in the novel that well in the novel the the Gerber character Garber character is is somebody else basically Stone took that idea kind of combined a bunch of characters and in the screenplay they actually describe him as a black person he's a black man and I thought that was neat that they kind of went back to that with the taking of Pelham one two three two thousand nine the Tony Scott version. But that's kind of where my compliments end for that one. Rewatched it again yesterday, and I was like, okay, it's not as terrible as I remember. Though I was so glad, Keith, you know, before... So I go to MJR Theater, so those are like the local theaters around here. And before the movie starts up, they have a little montage of like famous lines, you know, like E.T. phone home and badges, who needs badges, you know, just all of these things, even like uh, I'm the king of the world and all these things. But the one thing that they're missing is lick my bunghole motherfucker, which I think, you know, it goes up there with like Rosebud, you know, there's, in fact, maybe lick my Rosebud would, would work as well. So, but yeah, just 
Travolta is so obnoxious in this movie. <laughs> he's he's he just had like a period of time where he was playing obnoxious characters like like freaking the guy from Swordfish. I mean, it was just like, oh, would you please stop it with this, please? And for me, I I never buy it for a second. Whereas Robert Shaw felt really real. No. I feel like there probably were criminals like that. I feel like John Travolta is a movie criminal. He is. No real criminal has ever been anything like that guy. They've never looked like that guy. They've never dressed like this guy. They never, okay, you're robbing and training and you might as well be wearing a sign saying, I am a dangerous criminal when you're walking down the street. Everything about it feels completely artificial. And it to me, that's the arc of the film, of the three films. It's like the first film feels gritty and real. Second film, like, like, oh, more generic. And by the third film, like, you're in a Hollywood movie. And I do remember as I was reading a little bit some reviews, but so we talked about an interview where Tony Scott admitted he'd like never been in a subway essentially in his life. He said, yeah, I think when I was young, a couple of times, maybe in England, I got drunk and went on a subway. I didn't really have any interest in going that we were creating our own world. And, and that's what it feels like. It feels like some Hollywood person's idea of New York, some Hollywood person's idea of the subway, some Hollywood person's idea of what transit people are like, what cops are like, what robbers are like, what it, it just everything. And then the ending is horrible it's everything that the first film and the second one to its credit did brilliantly which is make it about interaction between human beings and it becomes a shootout and a shootout movie that makes no sense and with denzel washington suddenly a guy who's not this kind of guy is like suddenly an action hero and going up against a full-time criminal but somehow when it just feels like every bad action movie you've ever seen i, I was hanging with it okay and then the last 30 40 minutes i just thought oh my you're not going there are you and oh you really are you're really going to turn this into a generic guy who's never held a gun in his life taking on super criminal guy and winning and at that point it was like wow you've trashed everything that was great about what was this movie was a super criminal who should not be a super criminal the guy is a white collar criminal who spent time in jail yes and I guess that's where he got hard. I guess he went through the Will Ferrell program of get hard uh, to go to prison. Just he shouldn't be that guy. He is just, yeah, completely wild in this. And then just the phone conversations he has with Garber and the the communication shouldn't work that way as far as it being two-way. Should Anyway, I'm not going to be the movie nitpicker guy. But just that is an opportunity for him to just chew on the scenery and tell all these, you know, monologues. Like I was there in Iceland with this ass model. And I'm like, Oh my God, like this is not Tarantino guys. Like I know you're really trying to capture that Pulp Fiction thing again, but it's not here. It really is not here. And this script went through a lot of different people. I know that Helgeland is credited. Obviously stone is not on this one because they don't use the color coded names. A lot of the humor has been stripped out of this. They try to put in other bits of humor that I just don't think are nearly as successful, but I know David Kep worked on this for a long time. And then it was like, no, no, you're off the project. Now it's Helgeland here. So I don't know how many fingers touch this, but it just feels like it's gone through, like like you're saying, Keith, especially that third act just feels like, okay, we have five different versions of the last act of this movie. Which one are we going to go with? Let's go with the action hero one. Oh, and don't forget to pick up that gallon of milk on the way home and have it end with a weird 
Denzel kind of reaching down to open up the fence, and then we stop and freeze frame before the shitty end credit theme comes up. I'm just like, what? <laughs> what kind of ending is that? What a weird way to end. Like, he doesn't even open up the door and see his wife or anything. He's like kind of mid-grasp of the, the fence as the movie ends. I'm like, that's a strange, strange place to end it. Not to be a nitpicker again, but it just was absolutely bizarre. You end with... Like I said, one of the greatest shots in history of Walter Matthau and that amazing hangdog face of his and that great music that comes up and punches you right in the face compared to this, which is just like a wet fart. I love me my Tony Scott. Some The bombast in some films is appropriate. It's wonderful. But this is it's a wrong marriage of style to the material. It's about people. It is about that. It's a smaller, more intimate heist movie in a lot of ways. It's not strange to talk about it. It's a lot of moving parts, but man... It's just like try to almost like try to pump it up, almost like we're on steroids just for the steroids' sake. Why do you need all that? And the, again, this the style of the, the the choppy editing and the slow motion bits are like, what's going on here? Like, what? Yeah, stylistically, Why? there's no reason for all the stylization that Scott threw at it was only harmful because it just takes you completely out of the actual rhythm of what's going on. It just feels so superimposed. And look, I love stuff. I'm with you. I'm right piece of the right movie. The right style. Stylized films are great, but this just feels like I'm a stylish director, so I'm going to just throw in, now I'll throw in slow motion, now I'll throw in skip motion, now I'll th- but without any, without really ever saying anything. It just seems like somebody just pulled things out of a hat of, oh, what effect haven't I done for a few scenes? Oh, I'll do that. Like the, the camera motion is, I love camera motion, but like it's the same motion over and over again on Denzel Washington every time he's at the desk and it's just going back and forth and you can just feel like they just put a piece of track down and went back and forth. It never seems to be about something that's happening to him. And, oh, the camera's moving because his perspective is changing or the weight of the film is changing. It just, we can't let the camera sit still, so we'll just move it along. I find that stuff really frustrating because I find that it takes me out of the movie. It doesn't pull me into the movie. And I think good camera movement or good sort of flashy direction pulls you in. And this, I was just very aware of just why that? Why the sheet? Why this shot? Why this ankle? Why the helicopter? Why the? I want some of the credits. Almost read edited by Edge Lord. Like, who, who is this guy? Impresses boss with like, oh look, check this out. I found this on Pro Tools. That's like, what? <laughs> yeah, all those weird things where it's like, oh, we're at Twenty Third Street. You know, like <laughs> okay, like Google Maps. Relax, Slayer man. <laughs> I mean, we talked about how Garber isn't a white knight, you know, like they're calling the Japanese people dummies and just, you know, like, oh, and this is Victor Rico Patron on weekends. He works for the mafia, those kind of things where he's just eh, slightly inappropriate, if not fully inappropriate, but he's not a thief in that we have to have this weird subplot of that Denzel. And I'm guessing that he just didn't buckle to the pressure of Travolta, who just keeps going. No, no. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. Tell me. And finally, he's like, okay, all right. I took the money. I took the $35,000. It was all a bribe that really didn't make any difference whatsoever. And I gave it to my kids for the college fund. And this won't come back at the end, unless maybe that's what Gandolfini is talking about, that uh, he's going to take care of me. The city will stand behind you. And Gandolfini's the guy who basically solves the crime. You know, <laughs> he's the one who's just like, who the hell would go to Iceland with an ass model? Oh, a white-collar criminal. Let's go to the record book. And I'm just like, oh, you're the one that solved this crime. All That's right. That's a great point. Compared to the mayor in the first the original, it's like, whoa, we've gone like full circle. It's like, or, or, or not 180. It's like, what? And now the mayor's the... 
the mayor who only takes a dollar salary but has all those fancy suits. And I'm glad that they're just pretty much like, well, this is Michael Bloomberg. He even makes the Giuliani reference at one point. I'm like, again, setting this in a very, very particular time and place. Like, we, you know, we did get to hear about Fiorello LaGuardia from Doris Roberts, but that was a great, great insult rather than this takes place exactly X number of years after Fiorello LaGuardia. And you mentioned the Denzel's characters being taking a bribe and it's everything that's different about this in the original is both what he did wrong is so much more clunky and on the nose than anything Walter Matthau's character did wrong. Whereas Walter Matthau's a bit of a jerk at times and a bit of a racist and a bit of a sexist and and it's, this guy actually stolen $35,000, but then the movie completely chickens out and immediately, like within seconds of finding that out, it starts apologizing for it. And it starts, oh, I gave it to my kids and their college fund and it didn't really change. Yes, I took the money, but it didn't change any decision that anybody ever made about what subway cars. It goes over the top and then completely disowns its own over the top. So it ends up being a real a nil rather than being something small and gritty and real and that this is a flawed hero because... He's a human being and he's flawed. Suddenly he's got to be a guy who's grifted the whole city, but he's the greatest guy in the world other than that. And he's going to bring all the milk to the wife and it's going to be, but just it's that thing of just, and again, it feels like modern Hollywood is go way over the top and back away from any inference of what you just did and say, yeah, but don't, but pay no attention to that. We told you this guy is actually really is a criminal, but not really. Exactly. And also the guilty of the of like modern Hollywood over explaining, because I'm guessing it from notes from executives saying, oh, you got to nail this down and you know have their arc of a follow through. Like for all we knew, Zachary Garber in the original was a shady character. Who knows? We don't know. I mean, these guys are kept at arm's length. It's, it's wonderful. It's like they have the entire backstories that make me so interested to hear that. I, I want to follow the lady who fell asleep in the train the entire time and drunk. I was like, what's her story? What was her night? Like? But I mean, it's all endless. Like, it's almost like modern movies be too much. This is just enough to entice you. It's like, man, I want more. I'd read, I'd watch a you know a Mr. Blue backstory novel or movie. What's his deal? I love that. So yeah, it's I guess that's classic over-explaining, spoon-feeding you motions and such. So understatement, it's your friend. I really do. Underplaying is your friend. What I feel so bad for Louis Guzman in this movie, because he's one of the most fascinating character actors that are in this. And one of the, you know, I mean, Michael Rispoli's great. John Turturro's a great actor as well. But I mean, I love Guzman and it just feels like he's completely sidelined. Like we barely get any Guzman in this and then he gets shot in the head so early in the movie. It's like 45 minutes in, they're already bringing the money down. And I was like, whoa, whoa, this is way too early. What are we going to do? How, how's this movie being paced here? But yeah, when he gets shot, I was just like, well, movie's over for me. You know, no Guzman, no film. Weird use of a really good actor because he like, he gets to do nothing. And yeah, it's, I guess that was the idea would be to surprise you with a sort of Hitchcock, you know, kill a really well-known actor early on and you won't see it coming. But it just, in this case, feels just clunky and well, that's too bad because that's a character I would have liked. I actually interested in one of the things that's interesting also in Hollywood is that, as I understand it, the original was a fairly modestly budgeted film. It was not a huge movie. It was a studio movie, but it wasn't among the more expensive films of its year. Whereas the remake, it's gigantic. It's huge car crashes and everything is so big and over the top and, and in the process lost everything that made it work. And that inflation of budget, probably by a, you know, a zero, is actually exactly what's wrong with it because it 
lose the sight of well, why did this work? It worked because you had great actors giving great performances and great characters. And suddenly when it cost 80 million instead of 8 million or whatever, but oh, we got to have people being shot in slow motion with blood flying out and then huge, ridiculous car crashes that like no car has ever in the world actually crashed like. And part of what's beautiful in the original is that even where there are stunts, it's like real life. It's like, oh, a car bangs into another car that turns over. It's quick and it's over and it's, and you see an accident on the streets. Oh my God, did that just happen? And here it's everything is drawn out and this car flips over a wall and then it's hit by another car and then it, but the cops still walk away. It's just that, it's that inflation thing that Hollywood's decided that people will only be interested if it's, because the other thing you talked about early with the first one is that it's very pacey, but it never feels rushed. The original never feels rushed. It moves, it gets you right away, it moves, but it doesn't, it doesn't think, it doesn't, I don't feel like the movie's worried that you are going to get bored, the first one. I feel like the Tony Scott movie spends the entire movie terrified you should ever be bored for a second. So we're going to do so many noisy and fast things and all that you can never have a chance to get bored. But of course, you will never have a chance to get emotionally involved or grounded either. And to me, that's also very much a, a something that happened over that 20, 30 year period between the two. I find funny you mentioned the budget. I actually have that here. It was 3.8 million. So I was curious, which is almost four times the ransom demand, which is funny. And then the three movies, I was curious, it goes from 1 million ransom to 5 million in the TV movie to 10 million. But that's a fake out, of course, because there's more going on there, of course. But I guess that was there. Clever. But by, by, by 19, sorry, 2009, 10 million doesn't feel like to a certain New York. It's like, okay. In 1974, 1 million feels devastating. It's like, oh my God, a million bucks. We're strapped. <laughs> we can't afford to pay employees as it is. That feels more painful to me. 1 million. Although it's so interesting is even in the first one, you had the old guy on the train going, that's not so great, a million dollars. I actually think what's interesting is even at that time, it was a lot of money. But And to me, it spoke to the cleverness of a Robert Shaw's character was that he knew the city was financially strapped. So I always assumed is that he picked a number that New York at that time could come up with, that he was smart enough to go, yeah, I could... On paper, I should get $10 million, even in 1974. But if I ask for that, I won't get it because they don't have it. So I have to have a number that I will actually can get in my hands. And to me, that's part of the cleverness of the original film. That, that's so right. He also he knows how much to ask for and how much time to give them. He knows an hour. You can do it in an hour. I know your systems. I know how you work. You can do this. You have to hustle, but you'll do it. That's a great criminal <laughs> right there. And yeah, that it was all a... Uh, basically a stock market scheme that he had his $2 million seed money that he planted in the stock market and was just waiting to drive stuff up, which again, I think is a reference to 9-11. And we definitely have that reference of uh, the aide telling the mayor that he's supposed to read the cat in the hat for the third grade. It so reminded me of when George W. Bush was reading, what, it was a story about a goat to a grade school during 9-11. And then there's the whole thing of like, this is not terrorism, this is not terrorism. And that just seems to like end the discussion. But this is a city that is just underwent, I mean, yes, eight years prior, but we're still talking about it today, obviously. 20 years later, we're still talking about it. These people are traumatized. They're going to bring up like, oh my God, these guys are going to murder us all. They're, you know, the, they'll, they are going to panic way more than the people that are on the strand are just like, ah. Okay. Yeah, you know, like they should really be, you know, like, oh my God, we have to rush these guys because, you know, don't forget what happened to, you know, United 93 or whatever. Just should have taken this into their own hands. It should have been a different 
feeling than what we had with you know 9-11 happening just eight years prior. Certainly, they would be looking at every other train. They would be looking at, there would be an assumption this might not be isolated. There, On the other hand, I don't believe for a second that Wall Street would crash the way that Wall Street crashed after 9-11 because it was a huge attack on the city that brought the city to a halt and destroyed gigantic pieces of infrastructure and thousands of people. A subway car full of people having survived 9-11 and Wall Street being the cold-hearted bastard that it is would go, oh yeah, even if they shoot everybody in the car subway, it's not going to, that would be bad, but it's not, I just don't believe the stock market dropping 10% because there were tons of, there were school shootings, there were awful things that happened and the stock market doesn't react because the stock market doesn't care about human beings. I think 9-11 was very isolated because you had to shut down all the planes. You had to shut, you had two of the largest buildings in the world collapse. You had the sense this could be part of a huge international war. This, taking over a subway train was never going to cause it. So even on a base logic level, the plot is like aiming at clever and missing by about 20 miles. You know, that part it into that. That is so true. I'm sure in the room is like, oh, I got it. This is so clever. You'll love this. It's like stock stuff. It's like, it doesn't feel... Doesn't you know, feel anything for it, and also it's, you're right. You think about it; does not actually add up at all. There would be a blip. Far worse things happened last week. I think in this country, <laughs> the shootings alone, like all kinds of things. Like we've had far worse things. Or the war in Israel, which is a far more that is a bigger possibility interrupting the global economy. And interestingly, had seemed to have very little effect on Wall Street even there. But I feel like that the new film doesn't take the audience seriously in terms of being intelligent. I think people are smart enough that. Most, a lot of people would sit there and go, what? This doesn't make, that's going to make the Wall Street collapse. I just feel like it's funny with all those really good writers, all the really good minds involved. The problem is when you have no central voice and no central idea, logic starts to go out the window because people are just desperately trying to patch things together and make it add up. It kind of reminds me of like a mashup of Die Hard 3 and Die Hard 4, Live Free or Die Hard. I can't remember which number that was. Unfortunately, we have moved past numbering sequels, but because it's got basically keeping our main character busy with something like John McClane and solving all these riddles while uh, Jeremy Irons is doing his thing, very much like his brother did with, you know, this is all about bear bonds. For this one, it's the Federal Reserve. But then you kind of mix in that whole live free or die hard, which came out in 2007, by the way, where it's we are going to, you know, crash all these systems and there's going to be this fire sale and just manipulating the markets and everything that way rather than this cockamamie scheme that John Travolta has, which, yes, shouldn't should not have worked at all. The real crash that happened just a couple of years later was much more interesting and much more. <laughs> that didn't make a much better movie. Even there were much better films made about the, the real mess that Wall Street was than this, which just makes no sense at all. I always feel that the recession was happening way before 2000. Don't they usually point it to 2008 these days? It feels like it had been going on for a while before the actual, like, oh, this is, we're in a recession. It felt like somebody just woke up one day and realized, oh shit, all, all these junk loans and all these houses that are being liquidated. What the hell's going on? It's like, oh, it's been happening for a little while here. We've been kind of in the shitter. It's the truth. It is always sad when, like, when real life feels far more ominous and worse than any kind of like, Hollywood invention. It's like, yeah, what else you got? Because this is not doing it for me. It's, I'm not scared about this at all. This is not. This is small potatoes compared to what's outside our front doors right now. 
I think we've all established the original, nothing can touch it really. And maybe, but it should not be remade ever again. (laughs) It's just, it's perfect. And it does, as Keith mentioned, it's enjoyable by anybody today who like comes to it cold, will get it immediately and see the fun of it and the thrills of it. Even they don't know the backstory about New York at the time and anything else, it holds up beautifully. I'm not a big fan of remakes unless it wasn't made well. I am actually much more interested in whatever a great novel, try to think of examples. I know there are bits of where a great novel or something is done not all that well, and then 20, 30 years later, somebody does a much better version, and that's wonderful because yeah, I find like good story gets a chance to shine. Or if somebody has a really different take that goes deep, if a passion to tell this story from a new angle. But just making something again goes well once is almost never a good idea because it just, you're starting in the wrong place. It's just, it's once you're starting from this was a success, let's make it a success again and yet make it different, but try to keep it this. You're already, no, that's not a good place for storytelling to come out of. And I think the fact that there's a remake now of every major story, it seems like every 15 years, they just remake whatever was a big success. They'll make it again. And that's never seemed like a very good way to, to do things. To me, it's like you only should either write a book or make a film if you have something to say, something new to say, something to bring to the table that you know you haven't seen before. That's justification for me is always, so I write this book on the shelf already? If it is, all right, it's good there. If it's not there and I want to read it, I better write it then because no one else is going to do it. <laughs> so that's really the only impulse that I trust artistically. For a movie to have something to say, a voice, something just different, that, and not just being inspired by, ooh, this did well, we can ooh, cash in again on this thing because people know the name of it. I think the name is funny that people, this has been remade two times and I'm pretty sure most people have no idea what it means, Pelham 123. And I'll admit, the very first time I saw it, I thought I was referring to the 123 trains kind of subway. So, was, oh, I didn't know it was the time it launches from Pelham Bay. That's obscure. That's fascinating. This is the one that's remade. It has name recognition, but no one gets it, what it means. The thing that I really like about the first movie is that moment when Garber realizes that they are completely blind inside of that train, that they have no idea what's going on in the real world, and so that he can actually say, oh, the money's there. Now it's going to take us a few more minutes to walk it down the track, that he ends up lying to them. In the 2009 version, and maybe even in the 98 version, there should have been a little bit more thought to put into how can they know if they're being lied to and that they have internet down in the train, which I just find I've been on New York subways before. I don't get any signal and these guys are being able to stream and their Google searches are coming up super quick and all this. It's like, why didn't you solve that problem? That should have been, you should have maybe had like a man outside or something in order to give it a a little bit more of a twist. But yeah, the original like you said, it it holds up and it holds up so well. And it just, it's such a pleasure to talk about this movie. I'm glad that I was able to revisit this so many years later. And this is one of those, man, when it's on TV and I happen to catch it, it's on no matter what, if it's at the beginning, it's at, in the middle, at the end, just to see that end shot again, I will watch this movie, you know, just, and to hear that music. Oh, this is one of the best. And I watched it on the, the, the 4K disc that came out recently, which I bought for this because I was, oh, I love that movie and I should own the newest version of it. And it's, I really thought it looked great, at least in my system. I really, to me, looked like a 70s film. It's not a disc you use to show off your system, but it's a, and I thought they did a great job of capturing what those films look like. 
it, it's the disc feels ragged in the right way because it feels like the film, not the disc. The contrast is great and the darks are dark. And the, But yeah, the cinematography looks ragged at times and it's not the super sharp image at all times. And when they're in places without a lot of light in the tunnel, it's a little soft. But that felt right. That felt, oh, that's what movies look like when I was a kid and you went and saw them. And I thought they did a terrific job of capturing that without trying to update the look of it at all. And and I thought it was very impressive on that level. Like really felt, oh yeah, this is what movies from that time looked like when you sat in the theater. So just on a I know we don't really talk about the presentation side of it that much, but I was actually quite impressed by the disc. I watched the ninety eight version, the TV version janky youtube site i couldn't find for some reason the file you sent because i'm an idiot but i watched it on youtube was it shot on video because it looked like it was shot on video it was such a weird the quality jump is so different it was like what is this this is so weird i wouldn't tell that it might be just that it went through youtube or you know what i think and i think it looks like it just horrible compression okay that's what it was i was like what is that this person that okay. that i got the the file and it just looked yeah just compressed to the point that I can't tell what this looks like. It was a TV movie made in that time, so it probably didn't look great. Digital was still a while away from being mainstream most television. That I think that happened more in the 2000s. The sweet spot of film is the 70s. That, and into the 80s, too. Like, to me, it's just it's a beautiful world I want to live in and watch. At a certain point, it just it jumped tracks, to use the Pelham metaphor. It just feels like, okay, no, nothing feels like that. The warmth, the, the grain, everything else that... My favorite thing is here. I go to the New Beverly down all the time. Seeing things on film, I get it. I'll defend it forever. It's like nothing like seeing it on film. A film that has been watched and enjoyed. I love all that stuff. It's a vibe, as the kids say. So apparently you can buy a DVD of the 1998 Taking a Pelham 123. And ironically, it is on a disc with Runaway Train, the amazing John Voight, Eric Roberts film. Interesting logical combination. I felt like the Tony Scott one would be a good double feature with Money Train, the one with Woody and, and Wesley, you know, that feels about on par as far as the, the way that these were shot. I'm shocked no one's done a, a video about the taking of Thomas the Tank Engine. That I watch in a heartbeat. The, uh, the kids, I don't know, Sir Topham Hat is in on it. He has the in on the fix. I like it. I like it. The animated right? eight-year-old. Yeah, Ringo Starr to narrate it? Well, Mr. Topham. Yeah, I just love that. The whole Britishness of it would be awesome. <laughs> Let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. And eager to do what he can He may be a joy But don't send a boy To do the work of a man Marlene the Magnificent It was hard for a man to look at her and keep to the rules That was her trying That was her trying too hard Mal Ferrer Wanted for every crime under the sun. But there wasn't a jail he couldn't break to reach the woman who wore his brand. Arthur Kennedy, driven on to find an unknown killer. 
Men are funny, and all men are jealous. Frenchy only gave me one of these. What about that? Oh, that. It was part of my cut. Kinch gave it to me. It was Kinch. Oh, what's the matter? Now the game is over, and I can tell you what's been choking me every minute since I chased after you. I'll tell you who wore that brooch before you did. It was a girl. A girl that I was going to marry. A girl the last time I saw was lying on the floor, outraged and butchered by the man who took that from her and gave it to you for 10% of her life. You're not going to meet Vern. He wouldn't have me, because I belong to you. I don't believe a word of you. I'm asking you, where are you going? Away, away from here. The Baldy Gunners or the Golden Dollar or the Arcady or any saloon that'll have me. I'll kill you before you do it. That's right, we are kicking off a full month discussing westerns with a look at Fritz Long's Rancho Notorious. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Dwayne and Keith. So, Keith, what has been keeping you busy, sir? Busy trying to get light passion projects made, which is what I've been doing for as long as I've been doing I have nothing exciting to report because you can't really report anything until somebody's written a check for a lot of money. But in the meantime, I'm actually trying to enjoy all the other parts of life. I am being with family and wife and friends. and It's the holidays. That's what's really doing right now. Are you and Dwayne going to collaborate on a 1920s remake of Taking a Pelham 123? Either the 1930s idea, because that would be cool because it's guys trying to get money in the 30s is the Depression and you, you empathize with the villain. It'd be interesting. Or you do it when the subway was first like getting going and do like the Gilded Age when it was super wealthy people. And again... You'd have these real working class people and you'd ha- you could take all the class divide stuff and really deal with it and also make an echo of right now. I don't know. We'll talk. I'm in, man. I'm in. <laughs> Let's do it. And Dwayne, what is the latest with you, sir? After seven years, I finally have a new novel out. It's out. I think it should be appearing by the time this episode may be dropping or close to it called California Bear. It's my comedic novel about grief. It's not the way to sell this thing, <laughs> but it's true. Yeah, it's my take on the sort of buddy cop comedy, although it changes abruptly as you go through it. It's my piss take on the buddy cop comedy, basically. And I don't, I don't want to say too more about it, but basically it's about California Bear is a retired serial killer who's being blackmailed by an ex-cop and an ex-con who he forces into service. And it goes crazy from there. So it's out from Mulholland Books, January 9th. I'm, I'm proud of it because I it's been way too long. So I'm proud to have finally have a book out on the shelves again with my ridiculous name on it. You did a good job selling it to me. Keith, I'll send you a copy. Happy to, I'll send you both guys. I'm happy to send a copy. Yeah, I, I want to read that. That sounds great. I've got it on pre-order right now, so let me know if I should cancel that or not. So. Mike, I'll send you a copy. But I'll buy it for a friend, and I'll send you a copy personalized. How about that compromise? That sounds great. I, I like that. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Gesundheit.